Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Y'all a brew heads? Yeah, we brew heads. So pour a glass of craft beer. We can do this. Yeah. What's good, y'all? This is C Satisfied Brewhead, and welcome to episode 108 of Beer Nuts the Podcast Adjunct Series. We are back again. If you guys are watching on the video, you'll see the sign behind me. We finally got the neon sign. I've been wanting for a long time. I knew that whenever we had a house, I'd be able to build a little set. So uh, shout outs to Tomas, who from Signorama came through today. He built all this stuff. He does it like after hours at home and shit. It's uh, I love it. It's totally just changing up the vibe of the set so we're, we're getting it we're almost done um so if you're listening on audio definitely go check out the youtube just so you can see it and and, and listen however you see fit so this evening's guest has been on the pod i want to say at least twice there might have been another time i am not thinking about here um i've known him for about five years now uh he's doing some really fantastic things uh at the brewery where he's at um i'm excited to hear the updates it's been a year and a half between pods so you know as, as it goes in the beer world, a ton has changed, a ton changes in that amount of time. A year and a half, you know, is, is kind of like five years in the beer world. So, guys, please welcome Brandon Judd of Avalon Brewery in the building. What's going on, brother? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on, as always. Oh, mate. Do you remember how many times? Is it? I, I can think of two, but... I kind of feel, yeah, I, have a feel I think this, been is, another one. this is the third time. This is the third. Yeah, okay. five years ago with Lalo, that had to be one of the first. That would have been the first. That was, that was episode 40, I think, in the 40s. Damn, okay. in the original series. Right. Like, And this is a whole yeah, new one. Yeah, the original series. Yeah, and Got then it. we did it last May uh, with yourself and Max mm-hmm. at Aveling, and uh, yep. that was sort of, you guys have been open a while at that point, I imagine, right? When did you open? We opened in July of 2019, so we're Shoot. coming up. Three and a half, I guess, uh, when you get to the okay. new year. Um, wow. So, yeah, you know, you talked to us about halfway through um, our life to this point. And okay. uh, now you're talking to us, you know, at the age we are. Love it. Love to see it. Um, like I was just saying off air, I think this is like a nice little, uh, you know, a year and a half is a great time to um, to kind of do this because obviously, the, you know, we're going to go through it tonight. But, you know, the beers have evolved and you've sort of got this whole new series uh that we're going to be drinking tonight so i'm excited to hear all about it so first things first my man let's get into it so this is a beer we're going to kick off with meerkat um now i want to make sure so on the on is it it was i know this change and you just told me off air and i forgot the exact specifics so would you just explain what this bad boy is yeah so meerkat is a is a grisette we make um we've made it three times now um uh, originally, it was a, um, I guess what we would call a clean uh, grisette. So it was made with a um, saison strain that we really like, um, okay. uh, which meant it was very dry, aromatic, had a lot of fruit character from the hops and the yeast, but um, like a single culture um, beer, like something you know from the inspired by saison uh, Dupont um, or you know a lower alcohol version of a beer like that. Um, this year, we've rolled out a, a sort of growing um, line of beers that um, are canned sours, and they're like proper mixed fermentation sours, so they come from the same culture as our barrel-aged beers. So um, cool. And so this is a mixed culture of um, uh, brewers' yeast, uh, lactopedio, 
picky, uh, all sorts of stuff uh, that uh, kind of lives in these barrels. And it's it's truly our house culture now because it's, um, you know, evolved quite a bit over the last three years. Okay. We use this culture um, to make some stainless aged beers and they get canned and canned conditions. So we've got a separate canning line for it um, during the, the dark days of COVID and uh, started rolling out these beers um, in cans. With that is tops. very, very cool, man. Um, first of all, well, actually, wait till you, you pull. The, I, I remember having this, I guess it would have been the first or second time that uh, that you did it. So this is a different beer. So I'm going to do my usual little uh, photo review thing here. Um, loving the colorful labels that we're going to see on all of the uh, old labels. They look in fantastic. That was the first thing that jumped out to me. Like everything is like, before you guys ran with the color blocks, which I was always a big fan of. I love color blocked cans. But now you've got this, this really funky, fun, bright, like pastel colors. It's a little almost hard with the, with the neon here to see it, but this is like it's like that baby like baby blue, pink, and red. Um, yeah. Very cool, bro. I love it. The, we we really liked the original labels, um, but they were um, uh, is great work. Uh, but we we're looking for something that had a little more um, individuality to it, gotcha. um, and uh, kind of moving from. Um, you know, elements of design to um, a bit more of uh, um, fitting for the the way that we make beer, which is sort of um, fun um, but refined, um, sort of agile but elegant, uh, is what we're shooting for. Ooh, I really like that for a uh, for an episode title: agile but elegant. That's awesome. Very cool. That's the goal. Uh, first and foremost, brother. Uh, yep. Cheers. Cheers. So yeah, mi- this is a uh, full mixed fermentation beer aged in stainless for about uh, three and a half months and then can condition for two and a half months. So stainless for three and a half months. Uh, stainless and uh, for 3.5 and then in cans for two months. Cans for two months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between... Obviously, I would imagine it would be like a marked difference between this and the original being that now it's full house, mixed firm, um, yeast versus kind of yeah. that more standard saison. So um, I guess we're getting like, mm-hmm. I imagine this is significantly um, like I was expecting because when I think mixed firm, I, uh, like typically a lot of them are a lot uh, more, for lack of a better word, like a puckering sour, whereas this is sweet. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so we're always playing around with acid profile. It's sort of, for us, the most important part of, mm. uh, of a sour beer because, um, you know, the difference between types of acid and types of sour is immense. Um, just think of, you know, having a Sour Patch Kid versus um, a spoonful of apple cider vinegar. Uh, both of those are sour. Both of them are acid. Um, they feel pretty different. Mm. Uh and so we're looking for different levels of acidity depending on um, the beer that we're making. Uh, so there's a few different levers you can pull. Um, and we've learned enough about our culture to know how to kind of push it towards more acidity towards less acidity. Uh, in this, we are not looking for a lot of acidity. This is probably the lowest um, acid that we have in any of our mixed firm beers. Uh, okay. But it's fitting for the style. We, we want it to be crisp and bitter and um, aromatic. Um, and, uh, the acid is really just there to, um, 
you know, liven it up and um, give some extra texture and um, uh, kind of accentuate the fruit flavors because um, fruit comes with acid in, in the natural world. Uh, so we uh, have always found that uh, a bit of acid um, will always make fruity beers taste more fruity. Love it. The, that was a, that was a great uh, description there. The, you're mentioning with the, the, you mentioned bitterness. That's one of the things I'm getting here. Um, is it like, I'm getting like bitter citrus, like that uh, grapefruity pithy kind of thing. Is that um, yep. accurate? Yep. Um, yeah. So, so um, I'd say grapefruit peel, lime, lots of lime, okay. um, some white fruit, like lychee. Um, it uses um sort of new world's new the wrong term, uh, sort of new age uh, German hops, um, Halletau Blanc and, and Hall Melon. Um, and uh, these come with a lot of really interesting melon, lychee um, flavors uh, that you don't often see in like Pacific Northwest hops, for example. And okay. so we kind of wanted to lean into that, um, uh, but also give it a little bit of that citrus edge and enough bitterness so that um, it's not astringent and unpleasant on the palate, but it's got a bitter hit that um, sort of allows the acid to um, fall away. So the acid takes you to the end and then the bitterness gives you a real hard stop. Um, and you're left with like a, a pretty nice uh, dry, slightly dry mouth, uh, but quite refreshing. So something that's really great on a, on a warm day or um, really anytime. Well, I was about to say, it's about to be really cold and uh, I could drink this anytime. It's uh, you're you're right, and it's only uh, three point eight, right? So it's 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 a yep. light. Um, there, this has an insane amount of flavor uh, for three point eight, man. Um, does that come from? Is a lot of that from the the mixed firm yeast? I imagine. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. The flavor density and complexity that comes from the mixed culture is just like completely different than yeah. um, what you'll get from pure culture. Um, there's also like a reasonable amount of honey in this and it's can conditioned with honey um, instead of with sugar, which is how you'd normally do it. Um, so that brings a little extra florality and a little extra texture. Um, mm. There's something about honey that um, even if it ferments um, totally away, all the sweetness, the, the, there's a feeling you still have in honey um, that lasts right through the end, no matter what you throw at it. So um mm. I can't speak to what that is chemically, but um, experientially, um, we've seen it um, repeatedly uh, that we get this this extra hit of texture and softness. Um, so that's helping as well with the depth of flavor. Oh yeah, I know. I've definitely uh, is it yeah, is so, it carrion? That's the beer um, that you have with the the honey. It's like a honey ale, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So we'll, we'll taste that later today. Yeah. Uh, that one uses a lot more honey than this. Um, okay like three times as much. Um, that's okay. if you're driven by um, honey. Um, the honey is sort of one of the many things in this beer that um, kind of we are adding in um, uh, with the plan of having sort of depth, complexity, and, and, and a density of flavor um, without having it be uh, too heavy-handed or overwhelming. Um, at 3.8%, um, it still should be a light and agile, which is sort of where the name comes from. Um, like it should be able to yes. kind of bounce around your palate. I love it. Um, it's really cool, man. Um, I really, I really appreciate talking to you. And, uh, and when we drink these beers, I just feel like 
there's, there's so much to it and it's it's equally where you could have people just sitting on the Aveling patio and just crushing the beers, not even thinking about it and just enjoying it. Or you can get kind of really nerdy and deep with it for a beer that's 3.8% as well. Like it's, it's, it's fascinating, man. Um, I love it. This is, this is great. The mixed firm cat. Okay. So first things first though, for everyone, normally we would go into the, uh, you know, Brandon's history and Aveling. We've, we've definitely done that on the last pod. So we want to be, you know, if you want to go hear all of that, I definitely recommend that. Um, but tonight we're going to be definitely talking about this new mixed firm series of, of cans. So I want to start with sort of where did the idea come from to, I mean, obviously the mixed firm and sours are, are arguably a, a significant bulk of what you make at Aveling. Um, your bottle series are, are highly regarded. Um, you know, there's some phenomenal ones that we're going to get to tonight um, as well. And, you know, what? how did it start to go from, the you know having those ones in bottles to now having this like can series that uh you know it's like a sort of um, what's the word uh like an offspring of the 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 more larger yeah. Um, bottles yeah that's a good way to put it um it started um there's sort of two things that that um really motivated it one was like over time we just learned a lot more about um how our culture operated and um the kind of ways that um, we could make it um, mature faster. So most of our barrels are like between eight months and two years old when we blend with them. Um, but over many turns of these barrels, we, we filled them, we always filled them with sort of a different style of, of work. Um, and we sort of discovered that um, there's certain uh, work makeups that um, the beer came to maturity in like three months. Uh, and once that started happening, we realized that kind of unlocks, um, a quick turn mixed fermentation sour program. So Ooh. that idea started to percolate, um, uh, especially since we're really, um, happy with the character we were getting out of this culture. Um, then, uh, the other thing is we, um, we'll have some of these beers later on, uh, where we, uh, create these barrel-aged blends to go on Ontario fruit. Um, so these are a bottled series, and they're sort of our, like, um, flagship sours. Uh, if you haven't had them, I highly suggest trying them. They're at an affordable price point in small bottles, and uh, we're very proud of them, and they're very ageable. Um, but uh, what, we've, what we've done is uh, we're not the first brewery to do this. It's a really great idea. Uh, after we make a beer like Pale Fire, which is our, which is our peach beer, um, love taking the beer off those peaches, you've got a ton of character left in the fruit. There's just like no way to take everything out of the fruit in one go. Um, so what we do is we put a second beer into uh, the tank. So when we transfer pale fire off the peaches and get ready for bottling, we have another beer ready in a tank and the same day it gets uh, transferred back on. So uh, we were looking for a way to um, package and, and sort of explain the difference between turn one of the fruit and turn two of the fruit, because clearly there, there's a lot different uh, about the process on our end, but um, uh, on uh, the consumer end, they're both peach beers. Right. So, um, and you don't always get to sit somebody down at a bar and, and give them a five minute run, you know, rundown of your beer. So uh, you have to have uh, a discernible, uh, 
differences and like an easy an easy way to to understand um, uh, sort of the different uh, quality level in terms of like ingredients um, mm-hmm. usage and time that goes into a barrel aged beer versus um, a stainless aged sour. Both are very high quality beers, but um, one of them is more work by at least fivefold. Uh, so okay. as a result, we, we realized we couldn't really put it in bottles and effectively sell it. Um, so we were trying to sort out uh, maybe a new bottle. We looked at stubbies for a while, uh, but nothing really fit our, our requirements for the bottle uh, strength and for ageability and aesthetics. So that's when we started looking at cans. And, right. um, you know, anybody who works or, or lives in and around beer knows that cans are king at this moment in time. And, uh, uh, this is, we wagered a good way to, uh, get these styles of beers into people's hands, because I do think that, um, as you said, uh, earlier about the mixed fermentation being the impression is that it's going to be puckering. Uh, you're not alone in that. I think that's the dominant assumption. Um, and like we put a lot of work and effort and time, um, into making beers that are not like that because mm. we would like them to be, um, something you can have two or three of. Uh, and so, uh, it's a lot easier to sell people on buying a can that's just a little more expensive than your average can than jumping in on a bottle. It's a great point. Um, really, really good point. One thing about the cans I noticed when I was looking at them in the cooler here, the, the tops, um, are gold now. That's my favorite part. I I love, dude, it's so classy. So the tops, is that on all cans are going to be gold or just this series of mixed firm cans? Just this series. Just this series. I love that. That's even so cooler. It's, That's sick. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a way to differentiate them. Um, I've always wanted to play around with gold gold ends uh, or tops. We call them ends in, in Ends? In okay. Um, Good to know. Ends, yeah. Tops is more descriptive, but <laughs> manufacturers sell them as ends. Okay. Um, Learning something. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, gold, gold ends are available at a good price now, and I um, – I've always wanted to use them and we just never really had a, a, a good way to incorporate them. And then, you know, this line showed up and we're trying to find ways to differentiate them. So the label is a big difference, but uh, beyond that, um, it is a nice little extra, you know, piece of flair, call it, um, to have your, your quote unquote fancy cans have a gold top. Yeah. And your every, everyday cans have your standard everyday silver top. I think that helps with, you said, with the price point there. Um, if people are, aren't really sure about it. Um, so you see it and you're like, ooh, this is fancy. Like you said, fancy cans, which is a cool name. Um, I also it's got really, real gold in it. Re- does it really? No, no. <laughs> Damn it, Brandon, you <laughs> got me. Not. You got me, you bastard. But it is, um, <laughs> it is a nice story. <laughs> no, it's, hey, man, I would believe anything you say. So you're my fuck. Um, the, I, one thing I always appreciated about what you guys do is you only use short cans and you like you said, your bottles are like 375 or 355, whatever it is, basically the same as a can. Um, it, it, one thing, and I, I imagine this is probably intentional, but one thing, obviously, any beer drinker, we always end up with a cellar if you drink beer over time because you buy these big ones like, oh, yeah, then all of a sudden it becomes a special occasion beer and you need a couple of mates to split it with. Um which is cool, but yeah, I, I really feel like there either is or should be a rise of the smaller packaging, kind of more of a single serving. You can still split these and, and it's great, or you can just knock one back and it's 
and it's also very doable. You don't have to worry about finishing stuff. Was that an intentional thing from your side as far as like making these higher end beers by making them so damn approachable, both financially and um, packaging and size wise. So it's not like, Oh shit, I got the seven fifty. I'm never going to drink this type of thing. Yeah. Um, the approachability is more of uh, sort of a core tenant of beer and food and wine for me. Um, I really believe that um, uh, the, the some of the best foods, wines, beers in the world are um, confident enough to be um, subtle, uh, delicate, and um, drinkable. Hmm. Um, do you say confident uh, enough to you, be subtle? Yes. That's brilliant. I love yeah. that. Sorry, uh, continue. I really Let's... think that being subtle is, is a little scary because if you mm. miss the mark, it's just plain. Mm. Um, but if uh, if you hit the mark, there, there is something about um, complexity that you are sort of, um, at least for me, what I like is you're kind of reaching for that flavor. Um, and it's always just maybe a little out of reach. Um and so you are taking a sip and, and you're trying to, to pick out every flavor and some of them are eluding you over and over again. And there is like a draw to that. Um, uh, and the confidence to, to make a quiet beer or a quiet wine, uh, just look at Japanese food. I learned a lot about that when I uh, worked at Godspeed. Um, something like dashi, um, which is like a core uh, sort of preparation in Japanese food is extremely subtle but um its absence is is loud in japanese food so it, it is it is doing a lot of work it's just um confident enough to not have to be the center of attention uh and Ooh. so that is um what sort of speaks to me and like that's only my opinion like um making food or wine or or beer that's very strong flavored is um you know its own challenge and its own um it's extremely valid and impressive, but for, for us, what, what speaks to me is, um, subtlety and, and trying to achieve sort of elegance, um, through that. Um, so that's sort of why the beer tastes like it does. Um, in terms of the, uh, the smaller bottles, that is about approachability, um, in terms of like, I can open this because I want to, and I don't have to wait to share it with somebody and I don't have to, um, wait for, a night where I'm happy to have three glasses or four glasses. Um, a they're 375 milliliter bottles, which are like demis, so half a champagne bottle. So that works out to like about two glasses of wine. Uh, and with the alcohol percentage that most of these come in at, uh, one bottle comes in as about one glass of wine. So um, it's just something that I've learned over time. I'm always happier when I have a little bit of a smaller bottle in my cellar. Mm. Uh, because I can say like, I'm in the mood for like a, a really nice beer tonight. Um, I can just drink it. Uh, I don't have to fret about, um, the volume, the alcohol or, you know, the price. Um, and, uh, it's just a great size for a single person to have two glasses or for two people to have one glass each. I love that. I love that. The confident to be subtle thing. I feel like that is like an ethos for life though. Like I can think that's so much... So I don't know. I think that's brilliant. Like anything that's sort of too loud and like, uh, like it's because they don't have enough confidence, whether I'm thinking of like rappers I know who are just, uh, but then the people who are genuinely good, just do their shit and they're confident and they're great. 
and they're subtle about their maybe approach. You could probably say that with different companies and just personalities and stuff. I just feel like that's such a cool way to sort of summarize quality, I guess. Um, and so yeah, yeah, it's often quality. Yeah. I really, yeah, that that's my style as well. I, I do want to stress that like, that's not the only path, but of course, um, uh, a really great distinction that I read once, I think Carrie Fisher um, said this is like that the difference between uh, humor and, and wit, uh, like someone trying to be funny and someone being witty. Um, you know, one of those requires a lot of attention and um, uh, you kind of have to control the room. Uh, and the other um, is much quieter and confident to uh, be there and gone. And if you, if you got it, like a witty remark, if you got it, you get it. And if not, it just passes by. Uh, and there's like a confidence in, in that. And I would say um, uh, I'm, I'm a person whose wit speaks more to me than humor. Um, mm. So, uh, but I, I like that example because like, you know, everybody likes comedy. Everybody likes a comedy show. So being loud in the center of attention and really um, like pushing uh, your ideas and, and your flavors forward is a very valid way to do things. Um, it's just not our way. Mm. I love that, man. This is a really poignant sort of uh, way to, you know, distinguish, uh, you know, your specific approach. And, and obviously, like you said, there is more than one way to do it. But uh, I think it sums up exactly what you're doing uh, very, very well. Um, okay, sick. So it's one thing I do is is, is overthink things. So. <laughs> um, what is that? To try to try to say it out loud. Hey Amen. I'm I'm here for the uh, you know waxing poetic and such. It's fun, right? This is what we're here for, just to to you know get a little deep sometimes, a little philosophical. Yeah, it's cool. It just it it's resonates nice. with me a real lot. I, I I'm gonna talk to Tiff about that. I like it so much. Like I just really feel like there's something about that approach that, that resonates. I still love a big loud beer too. If you want to talk about beer, like I'm definitely want some like, you know, haze that punches me in the face with some, with some hops and stuff. That's totally great. But you know, it's cool to sort of like consider that in, in that way, like a different, you know, other approaches in that way. I just love it. It's very, very cool. Um, okay, sweet. So the can approach, that's how you got to the can. That's what we're talking about. Um, did you have, are we, are you rolling them out like all at once or are they kind of like, uh, have they been like a slew, like, you know, here's one drop in a few weeks later. Yeah, no, it's a drip. Um, it's a drip. Okay. Once a month type of thing. Um, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, we, uh, would like to have, um, uh, you know, a decent amount of these beers available at once because, um, it's a good way to, um, display, talk about, and, and, and sort of teach on, um, how these things taste different. Uh, if you can only have one at a time, it's easy to, um, you know, forget the, um, specifics and, and the subtleties mm. of each one. Um, but if you're able to have them even, you know, four days in a row, four different beers, you remember everything about yesterday's beer where you don't remember everything about last month's beer. Um, so that took time because all of these beers take months to make and we only have so many tanks we can dedicate to this because any equipment we dedicate to this type of beer can only be used for that type of beer because it's a huge cross-contamination risk. So we've only got a couple tanks to do this with. Um, right. Just to build up a little stock. Um, at the same time, uh, a lot of these beers follow seasonal ingredients. So, um, you know, when something is ready, we get that ingredient in, we make the beer. Um, and so the, um, 
spreading it out represents sort of our early season fruit, our mid season fruit, our late season fruit, our um, wineskins, our uh, herbs, our flowers from the roof. It's a lot of what how Aveling runs, both on the food side and the beer side, um, is following seasons as much as we can. Obviously, the main ingredient in beer is not seasonal. Um, barley um, and hops, like they are, I guess, seasonal as far as there's one harvest, but they're both very good at keeping in yes. a way that peaches are not. So, right, right. Um, you know, obviously, there's there's things about our brewery that is not um, that are not uh, seasonal, but uh, this line is really driven by seasonal ingredients. So Ooh. this is sort of the exception. This you can call this sort of the baseline. Um, the rest of the beers we're going to try today all have some um, ingredient that we can only get once a year, and so this beer only comes out once a year. Mm, that's dope. Makes it extra, you know, extra reason for people to make sure you grab it, right? Because you're going to wait 12 months till you get it again. Um, that was a that was a good segue. Do you want to uh, get into the next one? Sure. Yeah. So um, what I think we should do is try one of these barrel-aged beers. Okay. Um, so it's a good way to um, sort of explain um, our the the a couple of the sort of core beers of this new can line are um, on second use fruit, which is a really nice uh, method for doing things. Okay. Uh, so we should try the the OG. Um, uh, fruited barrel aged beer first, and then we'll try its baby cousin. I'd love uh, that. Afterwards, gonna talk about the difference, so we can try them at the same time. Okay. Which one is that? Pale fire. Uh, I got uh, Violet Moon here. Violet which Moon is our new one this year. Oh, I have not had that. I was looking forward to that. By the way, I think we had Pale Fire in our last podcast. Um, I would. I still. Th- I'm looking forward to even if we don't have it tonight. That's great because I get to sit on it for a bit. But this, I think, was my favorite beer you've ever done. It's just. Oh, insane bro that's that's the next year's version um so Ooh. we've made some i do you know what that's awesome because i might even i may have to double check i might have sat on my last bottle like kind of intentionally because i knew you, they were yeah if you didn't i've got more i can send you okay i'll double check because it'd be fun to kind of do like a, a side by side like the first run and then second run to see it. um yeah. Very much looking forward to this one. So Violet Moon Barrel Age Farmhouse Ale on Blue Plums and Gamay Skins. Um, is that from Rosewood as usual? It is. Love it. That makes yeah. me very, very happy. Um, okay, so this is a oh, 7.5. Okay, so this is the big boy. Love it. Is this one of the stronger beers yeah, you've done? This is one of the stronger beers we've done. Um, it's just a lot of fruit. Yeah. Uh, there's no way around uh, the fact Oof. that uh, all that fruit so, um, yeah. yeah, so we get, we get 800 pounds of, uh, plums in, um, the majority of the plums are a, um, a type called, um, violet blues. They're really Ooh. beautiful. Um, dark blue skin, um, and then like really deep yellow, uh, flesh, um, and, uh, 1800 pounds and they all get pr- uh, processed. It's an enormous job. We just did wow. it recently uh, for next year's batch. Um, no one's happy on those days, but it's <laughs> worth it. So, um, hey, man, I bet. 1,800 pounds is like two giant bins, um, four foot by four foot uh, by two feet deep. So two of those all get squished by hand. Jeez. Uh, when you say squished, 
Yeah. So uh, we do this with the peaches too. The peaches, we have to use a knife uh, and you know, we cut off a little bit of the uh, peach flesh just to open it up so okay. that um, it you know releases its, its juice and its flesh uh, more readily. Um, we were doing that last year with the plums and then um, I was getting bored and frustrated near uh, later in the day. Uh, and I picked up some plums too hard and I squished them with my hands. And then we realized that it was like significantly faster. They're just, uh, oh, you know, we're all like, wearing gloves. So just, you have sanitized gloves and you pick them up and you squish them and then they go into the tank. I was, that was um, what I was going to ask. That was, <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. not. But, uh, with the plums, it, yeah, it, it, it was a big difference, but you get a little bit of a claw at the end of the day. Cause you've been, yeah, cause you've been, uh, uh, basically, you know, <laughs> In a stress ball for six hours straight. Jeez, that doesn't sound uh, the funnest thing in the world. Uh, we salute you guys for the for the effort that you do for this, man. Um, I always want to um, ask. It's worth it, yeah. it's, it sounds very worth it. The is there a way that you like to pour the beer? Because this is one I'm like an idiot haze boy who always messes up uh, on. You already know where I'm going with this. Um, you know, rousing the yeast and like, yeah, get it in there. I'm like, oh, you're not supposed to do that with this style. Is there a you know, like the, you know, I've got that much left in the bottle, type of thing. Is you know, is should I keep yeah. pouring? What's your uh, suggestion? That's really preference. Um, okay. If you add um, the stuff at the bottom, um, I usually call that the goods. The goods, um, okay. So uh, if you add the goods, you're going to end up with a more intense flavor. Uh, you're going to pop the bitterness. You're going to pop the acidity. Um, if that's what you want, you like, you want it all at at like dispersed across your glass that's probably a way to do it uh, what i like to do is uh save about the same amount that you saved um, mm -hmm. you can see there i've done that um and uh i'll pour one glass nice and clean uh and then uh i will rouse it up and i'll pour a second glass dirty so then you get both um, clean and dirty so i really can see the, the difference between the two and in doing so the amount of um you know, sediment, you get into that second glass, it's a higher proportion. So, um, you kind of get two pretty different looks at it, mm. um, which I always Okay. I love that. That's actually really smart. Cause then you got two so experiences. You the whole thing clean. If you want a full clean thing, just pour it carefully, um, leave about a half inch at the bottom okay. and then you can ditch that <laughs> if you want. Um, I, I like to do this kind of, you know, one clean, one dirty method. Okay. I love that. That's really smart. Uh, so yeah, cheers. Oh, cheers. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. That is glorious. So this is my favorite beer we've made. Oh wow. Talk, talk me through it, my guy. This is this is crazy. I'm I'm still getting gathering my thoughts here, but I'm like, you know, we've got the gamace, we've got wine vibes, we've got the blue plums. I know exactly yeah, the ones so, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So th this for us is like for me at least is um you know, like a glass of wine, it's got a little more richness uh, because it's got a bit of a higher sugar load just being beer. Um, but uh, it drinks to me um, like a Gamay um, insofar as it's very fruity. It's got a little bit of a tannic um, structure to it, a lot mm -hmm. for a beer, not a lot for a wine. Um, and like sort of waves of, of, of fruit. So you obviously get the plums, but um, within the sort of um, – matrix of, of uh, the plum flavors, the cult, like the mixed culture flavors and the gamay skins. There's all sorts of other fruits that, um, 
you can kind of get impressions of in this beer with like blueberries and cranberries and mm. uh there's some really nice uh warm spice in it as well that i really like um sort of like a clove um or mace something you would use in baking um and then like a really long finish it really sticks on the palate and sort mm. of that spice kind of lingers along with like some of the more delicate floral elements. You get some violets maybe, uh, or, um, you know, blossoms, that kind of, um, you know, floral element, kind of harder to put, um, uh, you know, uh, very accurate, um, word to floral characteristics, but I certainly get something like in the range of violet lavender, um, on it. And that's purely from the fruit. It's, there's no herbs in this. Okay. That was like epically uh, described, man. I, I got every single thing you're talking about in this. It was phenomenal. This is fantastic. It really is like wine. Like it's um, obviously you know it's got the wine skins on there, but there, there's something. It's kind of just like you know like a carbonated, chilled gamay. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like um, you know, you can get uh in like uh, northern Italy, you can get full strength carbonated red wines like Frizzante. Um, and that's sort of um, where this falls into, um, at least Ooh. to my palate. Um, so we're very proud of it. There's a lot of work that goes into this. Like, as I said, the processing of the plums is a huge amount of work. Yeah. Uh, but the, the blend, um, average age of this blend, um, before going on to the fruit, was about 14 months. Okay. Uh, then it was on the fruit for six months, and then it bottle conditioned for six months. So... Um, average age of this beer uh, in the bottle that you're drinking or that if you go to the retail store and you buy, uh, average age 26 months. So uh, it's years and two months uh, from when we brewed the beers that were in these barrels and, and to when um, you're drinking it. Um, wow. And so every step along the way, um, you know, is a risk factor on our end. Um, this can destroy whole batches. So sort of shepherding this um, over the course of, of more than two years um, is uh, sort of the, the biggest challenge at our brewery, but also the most rewarding one. Um, yeah. It's really, uh, you know, it's quite special to think that uh, when we brewed the original threads of this beer, it was, uh, you know, summer 2020. Um, it was um, complete chaos and uh, like an entirely different world. Mm, literally. Uh, and are now finally uh, kind of enjoying the fruits of that labor literally and figuratively mm-hmm. that's interesting yeah. okay so this is relatively indicative of the like you were saying uh with the can condition stuff that's a second use it's a few months uh all up and you you know you were mentioning it's about fivefold the work and the time for one of these barrel ages, is this a pretty good comparison from that, you know, the 26 months on average compared to, um, six or seven. Yeah. So this is like, this is what, what it really takes. So as far as your barrel, um, what's it called in French? They call it a, a shy. What's it called in English? Uh, the, like a barrel room. How many barrels? Oh, yeah, I was yeah, trying yeah. to think. You know, whatever you got. I'm used to the Quebec thing. They call it C H, like chai, but I think they call it Shea. Shea is how they pronounce it. So I always forget what okay. it's called in English. Just a barrel room, right? I guess. Yeah, just a, yeah. You can you can call it a barrel room. You can call it an oak cellar. Um, 
you know, our accelerator is in the middle of our brewery. So um, it's a, a high-risk situation. Um, <laughs> you can see them behind me. Yeah. Um, so on, on my right um, is uh, two of our – you can actually see uh, three of our punches. Uh, and on my left are our lager tanks. So everything is under one roof. And um, how many barrels are you not the yet? ideal way to do things? No, I guess uh, we've not. Got, we've got 20. We've got 20 of these. Okay. Uh, so 20, and each of them, it's, these are large format barrels. So your, your standard, um, you know, wine barrel uh, is about 225 liters. Uh, and these are all 500 liters. So hmm. um, over twice as big. Um, so 20 of these represents uh, 100 hex. Okay, so that's a lot. That's pretty good. That's pretty quite reasonable. a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a lot. Is there a reason? Um, it's, it's go on, please. Go Sorry, dude. No, please, please. Um, I mean, that is certainly more uh, barrel space than we need for our annual production. But okay. um, you know, one of the things about starting up a barrel program is your best beer is going to be a blend of um, old beer, <clears throat> um, middle-aged beer, and young beer. Okay. Um, and the problem with old beer is that you have to wait. Uh, and so if you're trying to put out a certain amount every year, um, you need more barrels than your production, um, because you want some of these barrels to be two years old. So you just can't touch them. So, um, you know, if we need 60 hex, uh, that leaves us with 40 hex that we can allow to age for more than a year, um, which is sort of how we're building up complexity, um, in our oak cellar. Mm. And you've done that from the beginning. Yeah. 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 So we started with 12, um, okay. which was certainly more than we needed at that point. But um, uh, we emptied all of them within the first year and a bit. Um, and that's when it kind of became clear that um, we probably didn't need to empty all of them, but we needed to empty about 80% of them. So that's when it became clear that, um, you know, getting to uh, old beer uh, was going to be difficult. So we um, found some... Every once in a while, punchins show up uh, from a barrel broker at like a really, really good price. Um, and when they, the next time they showed up, we snapped them up and uh, had them shipped to uh, Niagara and went and picked them up and uh, filled, you know, eight more. So we went from 12 to 20, and that has allowed us to sit on beer for two plus years. Mm, okay. And why punchins versus the regular barrels? Uh, so. Basically, like as as any vessel gets bigger, but this is especially um, important with wood vessels or any sort of breathing vessel. Um, as the volume goes up, the surface area doesn't go up proportionally. So um, a bigger barrel has more of like kind of a center core uh, mm. of liquid that is not actually touching the edges. Mm. Um, so you don't use twice as much wood for a 500 um, liter barrel as you do for a 250 liter barrel. Uh, and the result of that is that uh, less contact with the wood means less oak impact on the beer, but it also means less oxygen impact on the beer. Hmm. Uh, so if you took the same beer and you aged it in a barrique, which is the standard 225 wine barrel, uh, and then aged some of it in a puncheon, and then aged some of it, let's say, in a 20 hectoliter fooder, uh, the results of the beer would be dramatically different. 
Uh, the fruiter would have the least acid, the least um, oak impact, uh, and then the barrique would be the most of both of those. And so you would have a higher acid, higher oak component, and then you'd have a very little um, oak and, and lower acid component from the fruiter. Right. For us, a puncheon is a nice middle ground. I love fruiters. I would love to have some. But um, with our volume, um, we are real believers in blending as sort of the way you reach um, the, the kind of final product and consistency that we want. And, um, you know, if we had a bunch of 10 heck fruiters, um, blending becomes very difficult um, unless you're like comfortable taking half out and refilling it, which is not really how we do things. So with punchins, we're able to make interesting blends without having too many small format barrels. Interesting, which uh, essentially plays to your space restrictions. Okay, and Smart. and our exactly and our target for for acid, um, a small barrel. Every beer we've made in a small barrel has had much too aggressive um, an acid profile for for our style. Hmm. So we've played around with small barrels, and um, there are some characteristics of them that I like. Uh, there's some small barrels in this blend, actually. Um, but uh, they do not stand on their own. Um, uh, they are imbalanced um, to my palate. And uh, so whatever we've made out of those have been like a small percentage of a blend. Um, they bring some extra acid and texture and intrigue, uh, but they need to be split apart. Um, a beer only blended from those would not kind of hit our quality mark. Interesting. So of this particular blend, what percentage would you say would be the regular barriques or barrels there? Uh, 25, 27. Okay. That's more than I thought. It's not nothing, but um, that it was like honestly more than I initially was comfortable with. I think the results are good. Uh, but when we did decide on that blend, I was like a little on the fence um, that that was too high a percentage. Gotcha. And that was be mostly because of the acidity component? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I was a little worried that it would push the acidity too far, um, but uh, it didn't. Uh, and the other thing I wasn't accounting for was like quite how much tannin we got from, from the plum skins. Yes. Uh, it's like enormous for a beer. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you have a lot more tannin, you you can balance out acidity and like soften the harsh acidity a lot better because of the sort of structure that that, that tannins bring. Um, they you know they cut things off um, before uh, the acid sort of takes over. Hmm. Interesting. That's fascinating, man. Okay, I feel like I've never really had a conversation on here before about that. About I've heard the word punching, but I didn't realize the size. You know, it specified a you know, 500 liters and versus the other size. So that is, um, that's fascinating to me. Okay. So this particular one, the, for the little version of it, did that use both the gamay skins and the plums or was it just the plums? For, you mean for the canned version? For the canned version. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good way to talk about this. So, uh, as I was saying earlier in the in the in the podcast, we um, uh, the canned versions are second use fruit. So, you know, we made a blend out of old barrel aged beers. It aged on the Gamay skins and the plums for six months, and then uh, on 
the day that we determined, you know, it's ready and this is the day on the schedule to get the beer out, um, we uh, brewed a beer a week in advance um, that was going to become Seance, which is its little cousin. And uh, the moment we finished taking the beer off of the plums, uh, we immediately mm-hmm. started putting the new beer onto the used plums. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, there's just no way, like if you imagine a plum that has been soaking in any sort of liquid, uh, when mush. you take the liquid off, that plum is still, but yeah, it's mush, but it's like totally suffused with whatever that liquid was. And like, there's a lot of characters still left in it. Um, right. If you've ever, you know, uh, made uh, uh, some sort of like fruit wine, those those, those um, cherries or whatever it is still taste like cherries, mm. uh, and so if they still taste like that, then you haven't really gotten <laughs> all of the character out. So um, Good point. the second beer goes on and starts kind of drawing out all of that, um, you know, uh, latent remaining um, uh, fruit character, uh, and so what we get is a, a very interesting product that um, the fruit character is more like integrated into the beer. It's more delicate <laughs> and it's more candied. Um, there's a lot less like of a fresh fruit character. It's more like jams, jellies, candies. Um, and so the best way I can describe it is like, you know, this is a fruit beer. This like tastes like the fruit that goes into it. Um, and, uh, the other ones are beer with fruit. Uh, it's sort of like the difference between, um, drinking juice and, and, and drinking, uh, maybe like a, like a natural, um, seltzer with with plum with the right. gotcha 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 okay so was it was there a reason you didn't include the gamay skins in sales uh they're in there no no sorry i, oh, they I, are I too. wasn't clear on that so everything everything <clears throat> that was in the tank which is the plums and the gamay skins gotcha. is still in the tank when we put the second beer onto it so um the reason it's not really on the uh uh like description of the beer is that um you know, the Gamay skins have been used twice by the time Seance goes on to them because Rose would use them first. Uh, and then we use them a second oh. time for Violet Moon. By the time we get to the third use, they're not bringing much. Gotcha. And so then technically this is like a third use, really. Yeah. But second yeah. use for the plums. Exactly. Yeah. So the plums have lots to give. The the skins don't have much more to give, uh, but they're not going to take anything away. They're in very good condition. Um, They just are impossible to separate from the fruit. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah. I mean, no way to separate the two. So we just leave them in there and they're completely fine. It's a pretty dope combo. Like I'm, I'm crushing this. This is glorious. I'm I'm loving it, dude. The I was thinking now as as we were as you were just talking then, I don't know if you really like do this, but do you consider, for example, this is Violet Moon 2022 version, and then Pale Fire 2021, and then 2022? Do you? Because yeah. I don't believe. I mean, obviously, I haven't checked her on the, on the bottle, but do you categorize them as such? Like, how does that really... Yeah, you'll see the label, your, your Pale Fire label, it's subtle. Um, it's So this is the first year we made Violet Moon, so we didn't put a year on it. Okay. Um, but Pale Fire, uh, this year we put a year on it, so you can differentiate it. Um, so any of our original runs of bottles will be dateless, but 2022. Gotcha. gotcha. 
Okay, so that's something that's great. Just for even I was looking at the review and I was thinking, well, this is the 2022 Meerkat that I just had, and that would differentiate it from the last one that I had. And this is that, and I was thinking, oh yeah, Pale Fire. And I think some of the other beers I've had, and like you said, you do them every year. And the ones that aren't like your core range, like the IPA, the pills, and and um, all that type of stuff, that does it obviously, you know, consistently. But if you're doing these beers once a year, they're not going to be exactly the same because you're using so many natural ingredients, I imagine. So yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it, it could just be like uh, the you know you categorize it. Oh, this is the Carry On Twenty Twenty Two version type of thing, um, which is yeah. great. Yeah, you're going to find more of that as well. Um, with the, um, we're not having it tonight, but we make a beer with uh, red wineskins called Saint Croix. Um, mm-hmm. That is like our closest collaboration with Rosewood because it uses both their wineskins and their honey. Um, but we switch up which um, wine grapes are in it. Um, so the first year was Cabernet Franc, the second year was Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, this year we haven't locked down what we're going to do, but uh, it will be a different grape. That's dope. I didn't know that. That's really cool. The one I think I remember, like, m- like transparency. My brother works at Abilene, and um, he brought like a magnum of Sangfoa for for New Year's, and it was lit. So that when you did the magnum, was that the first? I think that was the first run. Yeah, uh, big bottles. We did big bottles for both, but uh, I think that probably would have been original. The original um, version. Okay. Hard to say. Um, you'd know the label, the original label is Cabernet Franc, and the second label is Cabernet Franc. Oh, Cabernet it says Franc, it so. already on it, so it's not even like a, a yeah, subtle. It, it oh, says okay. on the description, like where, you know, here where it's like barrel aged, it'll say on, instead of on Cabernet Franc skins, it says on Cabernet Sauvignon skins. Gotcha. So very different grapes. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, both like really beautiful wines coming out of Rosewood. Yeah, man. Uh, it's very cool. I love seeing continually uh, they work with, with breweries. It's, um, you know, I imagine yours too, but it's, it's always been mine and Tiffany's favorite uh, winery. You know, Will and Ryan doing yeah. some great stuff. And the food is now coming out of it. So it's just so cool that you're able to continue that relationship and uh, explore now multiple beers, with whether it's honey or... Yeah, and the whole crew there is uh, they're such good people. Um, it's always... Um, you know, a joy um, to visit and to work with them. And um, the product is A1. fantastic. No, yeah. I mean, like the wine is amazing. It's one of my favorite wineries in the country. But every time I have that honey, it, it blows my mind. It's crazy. Um, and we have it a lot here. It's it's so unbelievably, you know, it is actually inspiring in terms of what we were talking about earlier um, with what, we are trying to achieve with flavor because it's like very dense and complex, uh, mm. but still really delicate. And um, like, I've never had a honey that I can have a spoonful of and I'm not like overwhelmed by sweetness. Um, like I am, like I'm able to with Rosewood. So it does kind of fall into that same realm of like, it has all of the uh, depth and complexity that you want without ever kind of being overwhelming or being too heavy handed. I couldn't agree more. We had um, a bunch of Tiff's family from the UK in over the weekend for Thanksgiving, and we made a charcuterie board, and of course you have the honey there, and they lost their minds over the rosewood honey. Yeah. Um, it's just, good. yeah, man, it's it's beautiful. It's it's just such a, you're, you're so right, and it, it is subtle whilst being, you know, so delicate, like that, the floral and all those different elements of it. I imagine, I don't know if it's just, if it's the manufacturing on their side or if it's just the environment that they've got their bees in and stuff and they've got all of the, 
the options, I guess, for the pollen. I'm not really sure I how mean, it works, but they've been like beekeeping for 80 Ooh. years or something. Um, it's third generation, um, starting in the Ukraine and and then continuing in Canada. So um, very cool. I think it's expertise. I think it's technique. I think it's like you know old world respect for um, for the bees and and what they need and what you know what you can get out of them if you treat them um, respectfully. Mm, I love that. Are you, uh, I imagine, I know the answer, but I imagine you're a big fan of wine. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I drink more wine than I drink beer. Um, certainly I grew up drinking, um, well, maybe not grew up, but, um, my parents, uh, love wine. They're very knowledgeable about wine. So I've been very lucky to sort of be able to easily access high quality wine. Um, and so that's always kind of been part of my life. Um, and the older I get, the more I'm drawn to it, um, you know, flavor-wise. Um, the um, I learn a lot about um, acid and structure and um, exactly what we're talking about, you know, flavor density that's not muddled. Um, those are the kind of things that um, try to find in wine and that, I, that, that kind of are instructive as to how we're going to approach these styles of beers and really all of our beers. Um, mm. uh, it's sort of my, my experience with, uh, there are some exceptions to this, but with like really nice wines, like some of the nicest bottles I've ever had, again, are very confident to be subtle. Um, there is a ton going on, but, um, you're not like, you never like kind of have your head blown back by it. It's very much like in control. Um, and taught like it's very it, it's very tense uh Ooh. and controlled Ooh. coiled i guess is another word for that i never thought of one like that i was going to ask and you kind of answered it a bit but how much does wine inspire your approach to beer a lot a lot um at least as much as beer hmm. um you know there's some amazing Brewers in Ontario that I've learned a lot from and that I take a lot of inspiration from. There are beers and breweries around the world that <clears throat> I vicariously kind of take inspiration from. Uh, but wine, winemakers, flavors of wine are certainly what we're um, most inspired by. Mm. The Is that... I imagine that sort of shined through primarily through Kasangfu, if I'm not mistaken, was the first release from the barrel aged uh, series, and of course that was the yeah. So yeah, that's the that's the wine, the beer on wine skins. Uh, that's like the most like you know clear expression of that. But as I said earlier, like this beer drinks like a wine, and that's sort of what we are shooting for. When we drink Pale Fire later, like I often describe that as drinking like a peach wine um, there is no wine skins or anything in it but um, in terms of like sort of you know how it lands on the palate the lightness without being um, light flavor is sort of um, certainly uh, inspired by wine especially by like really you know densely flavored aromatic white wines that um, are just like an absolute flavor explosion while also being like very um you know, tightly wound and um, 
uh, like clearly expressed while also being, um, you know, fresh and drinkable. Mm. I like that a lot, man. Um, is that, is that common? Would you say in beer to be that inspired inspired? by wine? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think a lot of people making this style of mixed fermentation beer are inspired by wine. Um, there's not that many breweries that are doing it, but um, it, it seems to be a common thread. Um, you see, you see it expressed in in sort of usage of wine skins and wine grapes, but also in, in descriptions from breweries uh, about you know um, which styles of wine they drink and how they sort of think of them when they when they make beers. Mm. Does it inspire your non-barrel-aged beers in any way, or at least the approach to them? Like, you know, even this, you know, your pills, no, your IPA, etc. Yeah, it does. It's less. It's harder to <coughs> sort of ex- execute that in in the clean beer because you just don't have as many levers to pull with yeah. like a you know, rich and diverse culture that, um, you know, you can make one part of that culture speak louder than others. Um, and that helps you kind of play around with things and acidity is a little more, you know, something you can actually dial in. Uh, but in terms of, of, um, texture more than anything, uh, is something we, I think about obsessively with our beer and that is a wine thing. Um, even like the most, you know, sort of like light and cheerful wines have enough like heft, enough, um, texture, uh, on them to sort of, uh, give you something to grip onto. And, uh, it's something I think is, um, present in, in, in most of the best lagers in the world, um, is a a sense of, of texture that, um, the beer has weight, um, without being heavy, Mm. uh, so that's certainly something we work on. Uh, but other elements, sure, we want things to be delicate, aromatic. We, we definitely um, embrace florality in a way that um, uh, maybe not everybody does because obviously florality is sort of a dangerous game. If, if you go too far, it becomes perfumed, and most people don't like that, myself included. Uh, but this is a floral beer. Our, our Pilsner is, is, is a floral beer. It, it's driven pretty strongly by floral aromatics, and um, we really love that. So uh, that's another um, pretty common wine thing to have, um, again, especially whites um, that have some really nice uh, floral elements that, that integrate well with, with fruit um, to increase um, complexity, I guess, and, and sort of the freshness of aroma because like, nothing smells fresher than a flower. It's very true. Never thought of it like that. Like floral pills, as I feel like are, are um, fewer and further between, perhaps. But it's when you really it's think. Certainly here. Certainly yeah. here. Um, <clears throat> not in Germany. Um, no. A lot of pills are, are yeast driven, and, and they tend to be a little more floral. Um, Ontario is is um, mostly inspired by Czech lager making, which is an amazing tradition. Um, but uh, Czech lagers are, are not driven as much, at least flavor-wise, by yeast. Like the yeast is working on the maltiness and like accentuating parts of that. But um, aroma-wise, um, the 
a Czech lager is more driven by, you know, the, the smells of decoction and, uh, and your malt profile, um, and spicy hops than it is by yeast aromatics. Um, German Pilsners, um, many of them are like pretty yeast driven. Um, you'd be surprised going across Germany, how, how much you get floral citrus, um, grass, uh, from yeast. Um, it's just a different style of pills. They diverged like 150 years ago and, <clears throat> and each has been kind of getting further apart, um, as time goes on. Hmm. Interesting. I've still got it, man. That's like my next you know, major thing is to really now I sort of have the passion for the crispies. I definitely want to go check it out there. I know you studied there, um, uh-huh. in the last few years. So I, I want to learn more about those differences, but I have absolutely noticed the, uh, the Czech obsession in both Ontario and Quebec. Um, I know, yeah. I'm ha- with good reason, I- amazing beer. I think did something happen with the Czech um, uh, embassy where they were have some sort of program for brewers because there were so many that physically went there. Yeah, yeah, they have they have like a cultural exchange. Um, cultural exchange, okay. That they run with brewers um, uh, to go to the Czech Republic, and and that is certainly driving um, you know Czech beer in Ontario. So it's certainly successful um, for both. Um, parties, so it seems like a really amazing program. Um, yeah. uh, I, I, I don't. I know there's no German equivalent right now. I can't really imagine there will be, but um, I would um, really love more people in Ontario to, you know, sort of have the opportunity um, to try fresh German beer, especially lager, but also fresh German Hefeweizen is like a revelation. Um, it's it's a really special place for beer, um, and, and the, the, um, so many different looks at at, at pale lagers. Um, regionally and stylistically, there are just so many beautiful expressions of Ooh. of lager beer. Um, it is uh, it is definitely um, a bucket list item, or I would hope it's a bucket list item for anybody who's really passionate about lagers. Your uh, particular lagers, I guess they're mostly German-inspired then? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we make a couple Czech beers, but um, they are, like, made in a German style. Gotcha. Um, so, they're like, we make a, um, what is the equivalent of, like, a Czech pale lager or a Czech templado. Um, mm-hmm. I can't pronounce Czech words well enough to attempt the I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Czech word. Um for it, but uh, you know it's a Czech templado, but it is made in with a lot of German um, influence. So okay. we kind of call it we call it a Bohemian lager as a result because okay. you know Bohemia is like the border of the Czech Republic and, and Germany, and like historically has been part of both countries has been its own thing. Um, so now it's like definitively Czech, but um, historically Bohemia was. Um, sort of a transition land between uh, German kingdoms and, and sort of uh, traditional Czech lands. And uh, so for us, that felt like the right title for it. That's great. Uh, I know that was off, off topic. But everything else to make is, is German. It's more German style. Okay, sick. Um, I want to segue on to the, I guess, the seance would probably be the next one, right? To Yeah, let's do seance. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to grab another glass so I can kind of do a side-by-side. Yeah. All right. So this one, more beautiful artwork on this can. 
Look at that bad boy. With the purple, the pink, the uh, orange in there. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So, once again, this has got the uh, the plums and the uh, gamay with the beautiful gold end, as we call them in beer. As, as we call them in the biz. Um, I'm paying attention, Brandon. I'm paying attention. Yeah, I know. You always are. Oh, don't mess around. Don't mess around, bro. Um, okay, so... And this one is, so the big cousin of this Violet Moon is 7.5. And this one, I didn't actually look at it, is 5.5. 5.5, okay. Yeah. So it's lighter weight, certainly. Um, lighter weight. color, you'll see that instead of that like deep sort of ruby purple color, uh, mm -hmm. you've got this like real nice pale um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of like a, a blush type of color. Blush is um, a good way to describe it. Uh, it's um, again like there is no um, fresh fruit added to this beer, um, but I think um, when you smell it and when you taste it, um, the impression of plums is absolutely there. It's just as I said earlier, it's like really integrated into the rest of the flavors, um, more candied. Um, and uh, we really love the result of it. Like, this beer is just like a real crusher. You can really enjoy this without thinking about it. But if you stop, you know, kind of slow down and start, you know, nerding out over it, there, there's a lot of funky complexity going on, um, which is a good. Um, that's pretty much what we're trying to do with this entire uh, uh, line of beers. I love it. First of all, cheers, man. Cheers. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is fascinating. So it's like immediately, it just, it's like a, 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 just a straight up lighter version. Like it's very similar in the characteristics. Mm. So, like, the Violet Moon is, like you said, like the, tan the tannins. That's like, it's like drinking, like I think, I think I said earlier, cold carbonated wine. Very similar, very upfront flavors. The wine is definitely like the the wine skins are very upfront, um, complex and chewy. This right here is it's like a I don't want to say watered down because it's not it, but it's like a slightly more subtle version of it. I feel like the body is quite different. The body is like, you know, I always like calling these type of beers like a chewy body. I feel like almost the chewiness is accentuated in seance a little more. And that could, I'm not sure. Interesting. What um, it also could be I'm sipping this. I've, I've obviously almost wrapped up the, the bottle there. So um, I, I probably, it's a little harder to, to compare directly, but I'm feeling like it's more like, Maybe it's more like that creamy um, carbonation where the Violet Moon is yeah, maybe a little... Yeah, that's how I would describe it. Maybe that's what I'm getting, yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear your yeah. thoughts on this, man, because you already got the, you got the words. <laughs> it's it's uh, your yeah, job. I, I think chewy, chewy is a really good descriptor for um, sort of the, the density of, of Violet Moon. Um, uh, I think uh, Seance is a little more like Silken or... Um, um, creamy. Um, mm. It is full, but um, 
but not chewy. Uh, so then that one is that okay. sort of being lighter on its feet. It drinks easier. You're right. This is not um, chewy at all. You're right. Yeah. It's um, but but you're you're totally right that like there is there is like a texture to it. Um, uh, I just don't think it grips as much. Um, which makes it just more of an easy drink and beer, which is sort of the goal. Um, you get a lot of plum jam and a little bit of that warm spice um, on it and it, it real candied notes, which we're really sort of happy with. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, uh, I'm very proud of this beer. I think it's elegant, but it also smells like Welch's grape jelly, <laughs> um, which is a very positive nostalgic aroma for me. Um, so you, you get all of these jam, jelly, candied flavors, um, without really sacrificing complexity because there is quite a bit of funk in there. There is some real sort of, uh, like earthiness from the bread and, uh, I feel like it's got a decent acidity like too. Spice. spice. Yeah, yeah. This is actually, um, has a higher sort of impression of acidity than, because um, it's got less tannin. Okay. Right. So the tannin, sort of like you were saying earlier, kind of like camouflage that a little bit, but this doesn't have as much to hide behind. And it's the body. Like I love the creamy body on this. Like it's interesting in in comparison, like side by side. Like the chewy, I love that shit too. This is its own beast. Like and it's and it's. If you didn't like, I wouldn't have known. I didn't realize when we before we were doing this that with two, excuse me, two of these beers were like the second use. Um, I find that even more fascinating. And it's not like they're not like a sort of like oh, this is like a a lesser version. It's its own product altogether. It's its whole own thing yeah. that has that acidity. It has the body, like you said. You don't have to overthink it. You can if you want, but you don't have to. It's very crushable. It's juicy. Um, it's refreshing. Even with like, you know, I guess you, you associate maybe that crisper, that carbonation or sharper carb with refreshing. But this to me is extremely refreshing because red fruits to me are, are very refreshing yeah. year round. I agree. I feel like it could also, yeah. it feels Christmassy. Like it feels holiday-y, both of the beers. Mm -hmm. Because red fruits, I yeah. think cranberries and, and all those associated things that come with sort of holiday time, whether it's Thanksgiving and Christmas or whatever. Totally. Um, yeah, and that brown spice for sure. Um, you, know, you know, those are the spices that are in pumpkin pie and um, stuffing. Mm. And, um, you know, you get it in all sorts of Christmas meals. Um, so we got that, perfect you know, nutmeg, clove, yeah. cinnamon type of vibe is a very you know changing of the seasons mm. it's i really like this bro this is fantastic Thanks. i was really yeah, we're really proud of this we really think it it um as you said like it, it is its own product we really consider the you know used plums uh plum pomace as um a valuable ingredient. It's not, it's not, um, you know, trying to like squeeze blood from a stone. It is like a really like valuable ingredient. You try one of those plums, um, from the tank after the transfer, it is like 
weird and delicious. Uh, it's <laughs> like nothing else you've tasted because it is still a plum, but it's like carbonated and uh, full of, <laughs> of beer culture. Honestly, like if you wow. get one that like survived um, reasonably whole, you bite into it and it like, you know, it's like a pop rock. Um, it has like cool. buzzes when you bite it um, <laughs> because like it is like inside of it is, is, has been like fermenting. So you do have this like trapped gas. Um, so like, I don't know, like, you know, a, a, a fruit that has become like a, weird pop rock um you know jam uh sounds to me like a really cool mm, ingredient Tim. yeah uh, and that's sort of the the a big reason why we really tried to focus on on how we can use it effectively and 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 get it to market effectively because um it, you know it, it stands on its own um as an ingredient and that's sort of why the beer stands on its own hmm. i love it bro um what's the response been to these two so far then being that people can probably come in, whether it's a bottle shop or into the pub, grab both of them. Like what's the, what's the, the vibe when people actually realize like, Hey, this is the, you know, the big cousin and this is the, the slightly smaller one, but you know, don't underestimate that type of thing. And like, what's the vibe for this type of thing being? Uh, Violet moon, definitely well received. Um, we had a we, we put a lot of it in kegs and um, we're on our the end of our last keg, so nice. it moved very well. Very um, people were very happy with it. Um, Seance we just released last week, so um, oh, it's fresh. It is still new. It's fresh. Uh, people are reacting well to it. The can people love the can. The candles are really beautiful. We're very happy with sort of yeah. the, the design um, very cool. of that. Um, and uh, yeah, over time, I, I imagine it will be um, an interesting conversation because we're going to run out of Violet Moon probably next week. Um, oh. And so um, Seance is going to be there uh, to, um, you know, pick up that torch. Um, and uh, that'll be an interesting conversation to have, uh, you know, because it is so different, but it is so um, connected. Mm. Uh, both in, in process and in flavor. Have are, are you going to do Violet Moon again? We already did. Ooh. Oh, this um, wasn't the first time? This is the first time, but uh, we, already... we processed all the plums uh, three weeks ago? A all month right. ago now. A month ago now. Um, so, uh, you know... The nice thing, and this is actually part of the reason why we have, you know, such a long uh, fruit maturation time and bottle maturation time is that, um, you know, it's on fruit for six months and then it's in the bottle for six months, which, you know, adds to a year. Uh, so we're able to actually release these beers in season. Mm. Um, so we released Violet Moon in the middle of plum season. Okay. Um, but it was last year's plums that are being expressed in this bottle. Mm. Uh, so we're always sort of like releasing these beers while we're making next year's version. Um, okay. So plums are in season, Violet Moon comes out, we get our plum shipment, we make next year's Violet Moon. Uh, same thing happens for Pale Fire, things, things, same thing happens for St. Claude. Gotcha. Um, so it, it's still kind of a logistical challenge, yeah. holding on to these pallets for this long, but uh, the result is like 
a much higher quality and complexity at release um, where like you aren't encouraging people to sit on it for three months to like allow it to continue to develop. It's nice to release things um, when they're ready. You can obviously sit on it if you want to really accentuate, you know, your seller characteristic, but uh, we consider the beers ready when they're released. Um, you know, if you imagine there's like a curve uh, and then like on that curve, there is like a line that is like the start of the sweet spot and that it will continue to go up and then eventually start to crest. Uh, we try to release it like just past that start of the sweet spot. Gotcha. Uh, which for us is about six months. Six months. In, yeah, okay. if we released that three months, it would be fine, but we'd be saying like, ah, it'll be better in three months. Right. Uh, at six months, you're into the range of its subjective. <clears throat> like if you want maximum fruit characteristic, you should drink it now. This is the best possible time for fruit characteristic. But if you want more seller characteristic, then sit on it. But um, you're into that like subjective, what is your preference? Uh, at three months, I think we'd be releasing it saying that like objectively it will be better in three months. Gotcha. And is that is that tough for you to do that? Like to to keep sitting on it or are you, are you as the brewer kind of just feel better to be like, all right, guys, you're not having this yet. Like we're waiting. Yeah, we feel better about it. It is tough. Like um, logistically it's a challenge. Um, you're also like spending a lot of money on something that um, you have to wait on a year before you see returns from. Um but uh, both in terms of quality and in terms of um, sort of the identity and messaging of Abling, um, waiting a year is really um, you know, a positive thing for us uh, because it allows us to release things in season and talk about the fact that like 100% of this fruit comes from Beansville. Uh, so it's basically like 100 kilometers away. Um, no purees, no... No extracts, no no juices, just whole fruit from on southern Ontario. Um, so it's very nice to be able to highlight the ingredients while we're also releasing the beer. I love that. I was I'm really glad you mentioned that because I was really going to bring up the uh, the 99, um, mm-hmm. which I believe is something that we spoke about on the last episode, but I think it warrants uh, repeating. Um, and I notice on almost every can, or it could have even been every can uh, that we, we've uh, we had now um, had this year, which is basically all your beers are made with ninety nine percent Ontario grown ingredients. Um, yeah, want- so uh, Meerkat would be the exception. Meerkat's not a ninety nine beer, uh, but everything else we drank tonight is is Ontario malts, Ontario hops, uh, right and then Ontario fruit. So people can see that, right? Uh, so there's that little ninety nine mark there. It's on a lot of our beers. It will tell you. Um, that, you know, this beer is made. The 99 is there because, you know, there are things like um, technical acids, uh, water salts, um, that kind of stuff that, like, is just not made in Ontario. And and um, so some of these beers are, like, 99.9 and others are, like, 99 on the dot. Um, some of them are probably 98.6. Uh, but all of them are, are, like, you know, statistically 99%. Um, and uh, we were quite proud of that. We thought, I thought at the beginning that I would not be able to do that. But over time, we've just discovered some really amazing hop growers and, and amazing monster um, that uh, uh, has really allowed us to um, move a lot of our beers into um, that 99% realm. 
it's not something we're going to do with the German lagers because it would just not yeah. be fitting to the style. But, um, you know, we make uh, an All-Ontario Pale Ale, Com C. We make an All-Ontario Lager, Fallow Year. Fallow Year, I love uh, that and then one. Most, I, I'm, yeah, we're very happy with that beer. Um, that and then good. almost the entirety of our barrel cellar and uh, uh, and and the majority of these cans are uh, 99%. Love it, man. Is that so? Obviously, that's important to you guys, and it's been something that you've been focused on from day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like food systems are the the like driving force. Mm. Like Aveling is opened as a brewery, but not a brewery with a restaurant. It is like a brewery, a restaurant, and a garden. Uh, like all three phases of business mm. are um, like critical parts of the identity, um, and uh, the connecting force and the connecting sort of ethos of all of that is um, food sustainability and just like talking and thinking about food systems. Like we just don't think about where our food comes from and how um, those systems work nearly enough. Um, Food just arrives at the grocery store and then arrives at our home. Um, And so just kind of as many can, um, creating conversation about food systems and encouraging people to think about how to take part and um, support and nurture positive food systems that will, um, you know, strengthen uh, the quality, um, the health benefits and the sustainability of, of um, agriculture in Ontario is, is um, sort of, that's how you could sum up Abling as, as a whole. Okay. Is is that lacking to like how important is that ethos in the sort of future of Ontario craft beer, or if you want to even take that to anywhere really, like those businesses using local produce to the point of where you are with ninety nine percent for a significant portion of your your beers, like how important is that to sort of the future of the, the region and and sort of you know what I mean? I, I, yeah, no, no, I totally know what you mean. Um, I think ultimately it's a stylistic choice. Uh, okay. I, I believe in it as, you know, a positive thing to do. Uh, but it's not the only way to do things. Um, I think going forward, though, um, environmental stressors on beer are going to go through the roof. They already are. Um the German and Czech uh, hop harvest this year is catastrophic. There's like no other word. Really? Um, yeah, it's wow. horrific. Uh, and um, these kind of stressors on Europe are increasing over and over again um, every year. Uh, and so the uh, uh, price, quality, uh, and availability of European ingredients is um, going to be affected it's there's going to be fewer things available and they will be more expensive mm. um so i think you'll see more american um hops to start and uh over time though there's like a golden opportunity in ontario to um increase our production of these things that um will be needed in um at scale uh and you're seeing it obviously in the hot market and and very kind of slowly growing um you know a malts like a a, a more broad set of maltsters that are in Ontario. Um, 
I don't think it's like an imperative for any brewery to do this. Like it is a stylistic choice. If, if, if your preference is to make, um, you know, all Czech beers or all German beers or um, all hazies, like I, I think there's a lot of runway for that. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I do think there are going to be um, environmental and financial stressors on all breweries here um, that will um, – at least cause people to think about how, um, you know, they can reduce the cost of their raw ingredients coming in. And the easiest way to do that is to get them from home. Mm, okay. Without going too far into it, this is the first I've heard about the, uh, the hop harvest in, in Germany and Czech Republic. What, like, does that mean that SARS and other noble hops that are typically used in, uh, you know, lagers and pilsners from the regions that are very heavily recreated in North America and beyond. Uh, is are those hops going to be in short availability? Yes. yes. As of um, okay, and we can't grow them here, right? Like this, this, not in Ontario. Certain German varieties, maybe, but um, when you're growing hops no. in in any um, region, you need to basically the the first. Um, differentiator, the first the first test it has to pass is, is disease resistance, and we have like a, a fairly wet environment um, comparative to a lot of hop growing regions. So mm. um, there are only certain varieties that have enough mildew resistance, for example, to happily grow in Ontario. Mm. Uh, size is not one of them, as far as I know. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, noble European varieties, like Central European varieties, like the German Czech hops, um, uh, I don't like I I don't have sheets in front of me, but um, the numbers I have heard uh, are like you know a, a reduction in harvest between twenty and fifty percent depending on variety and region. Mm. And that's essentially without being hyperbolic is catastrophic to the kind of global yeah. craft beer industry. I to the global beer industry. Beer uh, and beer are are like a critical part of uh, many industrial lagers. Um, mm. Pilsner Urquell uses <clears throat> a lot of Czech SAS. And so, you know, if the SAS harvest is down a significant amount, um, you know, Urquell is going to get their hops. They're the most important buyer. Um, they're first on the list. So, right. um, so they'll be, you good. know, if there is a reduction that will be felt more strongly by small breweries. Mm, that's terrible news. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the reality of climate change is, is um, you know, Europe is having catastrophic heat waves every year. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, farming, like it's one thing to try to survive through that as a person, but imagine trying to survive through it as a farmer. Um, I've heard some stories, you yeah. You just don't get any rain. Yeah. You don't get rain. It's a drought. Um, it's like biblical stuff. It's this not crazy. Good. Yeah. So then – Breweries that heavily rely on, you know, whatever Czech German style pills. It's like, you know, breweries that do a lot of crispy boys. Like, mm-hmm. are they, do they have to maybe switch up? So like that whilst they, nobody's really screwed because there's always going to be sort of hops, but maybe it's just not the hops that you need. Would that mean that, like you sort of mentioned, they would have to pivot to be like, well, instead of SARS, I'll use the closest North American noble hop that would mimic it? Yeah. You can. Um, like, 
<clears throat> it is catastrophic, but it's not like there's no size. Um, price will be up. Quality will be like middling, you know, harder to guarantee. Mm. Um, uh, we are transitioning a few of our German loggers um, away from being majority European hops um, for this reason. Okay. Um, the outlook on North American hops is not as bad. Um, so we, we found a really beautiful Yakima hop. Uh, I was just out in Yakima a couple of weeks ago, uh, selecting. I saw that. Uh, yes. And one of the things we were doing is selecting for, um, uh, a replacement hop for a Pilsner. Ooh. And it's I, not going to replace all the hops in it. We still but, have some European hops, but, uh, we're going to reduce that. The character coming up of this, this hop and, um, it's a very sustainable hop. It's super disease resistant. It's drought resistant. Um, and it has high yield. So, um, going forward, uh, that's going to be a critical part of our Pilsner. And if, if we like it, uh, and if we feel like the, you know, sort of, you know, identity specific characteristics, uh, of our Pilsner can be maintained with, um, a majority of North American hops, we will probably move that way. Um, it's less, uh, um, shipping, uh, impact, uh, less CO2, um, footprint because a lot of these hops are, um, <clears throat> require significantly less spraying. Um, and that is like good. spraying is an enormous CO2 footprint because creation of those chemicals is, is very CO2 hungry. Uh, so if we can kind of reduce these, um, sort of environmental factors while maintaining quality and guaranteeing supply. Um, it sort of feels like the move. Hmm. Um, that said, like you can just buy size. It's going to be available, um, probably at a higher price. It's probably going to have a lot of high quality size, but you know, you're projecting five years down the road. Maybe there are improvements technologically to mitigate environmental stress, but maybe not. Mm. And so that means it's going to be, yeah, you're right. And maybe there's going to be a whole lot of uh, expensive pills coming out uh, next year. Maybe. Wow. Yeah. yeah, We shall see. But it's hard to charge a lot for a Pilsner. uh, Yeah. You just end up eating a higher material cost. Which I've heard from other breweries about other styles, to be honest. And uh, like Hayes breweries have told me the same thing, which I was kind of surprised about. Um, I thought the Hayes people of all things would, um, be more down to sort of like Cobra, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. But crispies are different. I don't know. I feel like I really like, I feel like they've kind of really established themselves as being like a real solid thing from what I can tell in the beer community. People are really like me personally. I lo- love Pilsners. Every time I see Brad, I'm like, can I get me some Pilsner? But I'm like, like it's what I would go for more than anything else. Like, you know, my girlfriend's cousin, he's from the UK. He works for us. He, all the family from the UK were over. So he still lives in Montreal. He's going to move over, but they went to silo in Montreal. And even like my girlfriend's mm. uncle brought me back some silo beers. Cause he knew I sent him there and he brought me back. Cause he knew how, you know, so like I'm loving that. So I, that's why I'm asking all these questions. Cause I don't want to see that gravy train cut off, you know, here. And uh, I feel like we've got yeah. some beautiful stuff happening in Canada period, but particularly Ontario and Quebec. And, uh, you know, at least like you said, there's a way around it, um, that you found 
Um, I did see uh, on social that you did go out there. How was it all, man? I don't know if you want to go. Don't have to go too deep, but great trip. Oh yeah, selection is pretty special. I've been in the industry for ten years. It's the first time I've gone, um, so it was very exciting personally for me. Um, but yeah, it's pretty special just to see the size of the operation, the um, expertise, the professionalism of the operations, and um, to kind of get a little more connected to the product. Um, as with what I was talking about, the grocery store, um, you know, hops just arrive as pellets at at, at breweries. Um, ours included and, and you know you understand and respect them but it, it's sort of a different process to go there and see them going from the field into uh, processing uh, and then kind of being at a table and having them put down for sort of cuts of the same hop from different farms different pick days and you can just like sensory assess um, their qualities and, and uh, which um which hop you think fits your beer best. Mm. So it really kind of connects you to your, your ingredients in, in, in a pretty special way. It was, uh, yeah, it was a very positive experience. That's awesome. I, I imagine for people like yourself, uh, you know, brewers that, you know, are very just passionate, you know, you're, you're a very passionate dude about what you do. And I imagine that would just be like crazy to go out there. I've seen those videos with those like, whatever it is in the warehouse where there's like, it's like a football field of hops, like in those, whatever it is in that little thing, I guess is where they get dumped in. Just crazy, man. Yeah, they're, just, moving, they're moving them with like construction equipment. It's like a backhoe. <laughs> it's just like scooping hops. It's, and it's crazy. like, I, that is like the overflow. It's like the backhoe is dealing with with spillage. Like whatever the automated machines spill, you need a construction vehicle to, to, to shovel up. It, it, like the scale is, is mind boggling. Like we contract with only one company. They're going to do something like 12 million pounds this year. And it's a bad year. Jesus. Um, so yeah, it's the scale of it is, is, is very impressive. It's probably, you see a 12 million pounds, you're like, well, that's massive, but it's probably really massive when you're actually there and see 12 million pounds. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Crap. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you think you see twelve million pounds. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, this is one one percent of twelve million and pounds. And you're like, and oh, that's right. your mind really expands. Yeah, and then and you that is a bad year. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, something that's else. Very cool though. It's uh, it's something I've never. I mean, obviously, I have no reason to do it, but just to go and have a hang out and see the shit, like uh, maybe next year. Yeah, but, it's a pretty cool thing to see. Yeah, it yeah. seems just like a lot of fun. And then, they must have events and stuff, and I know that I saw a whole bunch of breweries from Ontario specifically out there. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, so a lot of us, a lot of folks out here are really like, you know, taking the time. I know you're all very busy uh, to be able to go out there and uh, spend some spend some time and meet other folks and, and do the, the rub and, and all that stuff. So that's pretty yeah. dope. I think that's a really good sign. I'd be curious to see what you think about that, but like, I feel like it's a, it's a great sign for just call it Ontario for now, but say Ontario craft beer where so many breweries are investing in their team, or at least the, the, the head brewers or whatever to go out there, meet the folks, like you said, shake some hands, smell the hops and be like, this is what I want for our products for 2023 and beyond. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just very something very very cool about that. That like that's how much Definitely. you're willing to put into. It's not just like go online and go. Yep, give me X bags of that. Like you're like no no no. I'm gonna go and spend thousands of dollars on a flight 
and hotels and food and then travel and then go, you know, because you fly into San Francisco from, from what I understand or something like that. Is that right? Or is it? Uh, it's usually Seattle or Portland. Oh, okay. Um, so it's further north. Okay. You, you could fly into San Francisco. It'd make like for a long but like spectacular drive. But most people go into either Seattle or Portland. Gotcha. And then you've still got to go to the, the various. West Coast. Uh, yeah, it's total West so Coast. Big, so yeah, the PNW. I've had a few of the hot farmers on before, so they've sort of explained it a bit more to me, but it's it's still fascinating to hear the experience of sort of what you actually do. But either way, I guess what I'm the, the point is that a lot of Ontario breweries are really putting their money up to send people out there to hand select the product so that it's the best it can possibly be for what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. It, like, it's expensive to go out, that no doubt. Um, but, you know... Um, if you're not selecting hops, you, you, you are accepting a lower quality. I've done it for years. It's like something you can absolutely do uh, and still make good beer. But um, you're going to get higher quality ingredients by a long shot um, by selecting. And going out helps with that. Um, it really helps you kind of assess the hops in the freshest possible, uh, at the freshest possible point. And um, over the course of a year, you know, the extra money you put into selection, um, flights and hotels and whatever, um, versus the amount of money you spend on hops, um, you know, there's a lot of value there. Um, You know, if all your hops are 25, 30% better than if you spent a couple thousand dollars for that at the beginning, um, I think most people would say that was worth it. Most people would pay an extra 10 bucks a pound to know they had the better hops. And so over the course of the year, that's what that adds up to. Gotcha. That's smart. When you look at it like that, this is kind of, yeah, to, to really, and I feel like that's a, it's almost like a, a, a deeper connection. Obviously that you already have a deep connection to the beer. If anyone's heard for the last hour and a half, we've been talking, you're, you're a passionate guy and you've always been since I've known you. This almost takes it to another level because yeah, I, there's no equivalent for malt or yeast of, this end of year where everyone goes out to this region and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? There's no like mulch fucking, what do you call it? Like pilgrimage to go and like go and get, you know what I'm saying? Like it's really all about hops. Yeah, not in the same way. Not in the same way, no. So it's like there's something about that. I've just, I've enjoyed watching, you know, following along with a lot of breweries who are are out there and doing their stuff. And it's uh, very encouraging and very exciting. It's certainly one of the most special things you can do as a brewer, honestly. It's, yeah. it, it is like, uh, it's just such a cool thing to be part of. It's such a good trip. Um, there's just so much, like it's, it's like that perfect intersection, that Venn diagram of work and fun. Um, and it like kind of reignites passion. Yeah. Uh, I found my, my passion for um, brewing certainly was, was um, you know, amplified by, by going out there. I love to hear that, bro. That's amazing. Uh, on that, shall we hit the next one? Yeah, can I? I got to hit the head first. Uh, yeah, man, do it up. And, uh, I'll, I'll keep people chatting. Yeah, take your time. So, this is uh, super cool, guys. Um, I am loving this. Like I said, this is the uh, – we know Brandon. For people who, who don't know, uh, my brother, Notion, who does all the audio engineering for us, so he works in the bottle shop at Aveling. So go say hi to him. He's a champion. Um, we met Brandon in 2017 at Lalo Brewery when we did our first ever collab for my brother's album at the time, 
was called Heart on My Sleeve. And then we did a beer called Hops on My Sleeve. And Brandon was, um, he was, uh, what's the word, consulting, I guess, for Lalo, helping them improve their processes and get all their beers, you know, they started to brew in-house a bit more and uh, shouts to Dan and Colin. Uh, Brandon was helping them out. So I met Brandon through, I knew Dan and Colin. So I met them through them. We were doing my brother's album launch uh, at Lalo. So then we did the beer for it, which was super, super cool. So I've known Brandon since then. Since then, and um, you know, followed him through his career as he went to he went from indie to consulting there, and then he went to to Godspeed, and then on to Aveling. And um, yeah, these beers are just so well made. They're just so like if you the, you hear the way Brandon's talking, you know that he's very passionate about what he's doing, and he's he takes everything very very seriously. He studied in Germany. He's um, you know, really taking the the particularly this barrel stuff that we're really focusing on tonight very seriously. Um, so it's really cool, like, to to try these beers and then like the little cousin of it. So the, the next one, I imagine, we'll probably do the Pale Fire, which is the Peach one. Which this is the 2022 version, which I'm excited about because this was my favorite beer that uh, they ever did. Um, I'm not sure what the maybe it's this one. Peach could be the Firefly. I actually had Firefly. My brother hooked me up with that recently. It was fire. But I didn't know that this was what it was. So i got to double check exactly what's going on. But I just find the, the stuff is really interesting um, and, and just consistently unique, particularly in this realm that we're talking about tonight. So um, good timing. I just had a pause in my monologue. Perfect. <laughs> um, what are we doing, bro? Uh, let's uh, for fun. Let's go backwards uh, the other way on um, the peach ones. Let's go. Uh, Firefly. Let's go Firefly, and then we'll we'll go up to the, the big cousin. I'm here for it now. It, for Firefly, I swear I I had this in like January or something. Is this the yeah, second? Yeah, this is the second. Yes, this is the second time we've done Firefly. Okay. Um, so, like with these fruit beers, for every time we do one, um, you know, one pale fire, we get one Firefly out of it. And gotcha. For every time we do one Violet Moon, we get one Seance out of it. So, this is our first round of, of Violet Moon, so it's our first Seance. But this is our second round of, of pale fire, so this is our second Firefly. Love it. Is it much different to the original of Firefly in comparison? Because I know you said Pale Fire is is changed. Has this changed? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it has. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, I would say the um, the fruit is more candied than last year. Okay. Uh, I'd say it's more integrated as well. Um, we changed the aging um, breakdown. Mm-hmm. on it so there's more time on peaches pale fire um before firefly goes on okay fireflies on the peaches for the same amount of time but um it happens later so um the results of that is sort of we have both increased the um complexity uh and like fresh fruit characteristic on pale fire Okay. While accentuating the can- the candied characteristic of, of fireflies, so uh, mm. I think both beers are are um, 
improved and more representative of our goals on both of these. Okay. Um, uh, as a result, They've kind of, uh, we've been able to push them a little further apart from each other. Um, where last year, Firefly was probably closer to Pale Fire than than was ideal for our goals. In what sense? So, like, you you do like to have them a bit more of a just spaced out. We'd like, yeah, we would like distinction between them, um, and we really like that sort of um, like confected fruit characteristic. Okay. Uh, so, by sort of playing with the aging profile, we were able to increase um, the confected characteristic in in um, our fly. Um, and uh, that makes it taste more unique um, as compared to, or like, you know, in comparison to Hailfire. Interesting. All right. Well, Brett, cheers. Cheers. Get it in you. You said it before me this episode. Well done. Oh, yeah. This is great, man. So this, just, just to confirm again, this also has citrus zest in it. And so that's um, just part of the original. It's a small amount that was in. You know, um, the way we the way we deal with our oak cellar is not that like, you know, we brew pale fire into four barrels, and then after a year we take those four barrels and make pale fire. Um, we fill the barrels with all sorts of things, um, and we're trying to make sure that like we have as many unique barrels as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we go back into the barrels and we find our beers. So um, sort of our high-level categorization is in colors. So we have some barrels that we know reliably create like yellow and orange flavors. Okay. We have other barrels that reliably create red and blue flavors. So uh, when we go to make Violet Moon, the first thing we taste is those barrels that we know usually make red and blue flavors like, you know, blueberry, sweet tart, uh, grape, uh, you know, cherry type flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're trying to blend something like pale fire, we're looking for um, barrels that give us um, citrus characteristics, that give us peach, uh, that give us apricot, um, pineapple, those kinds of things. So uh, the citrus zest in this case is because one barrel that um, was sort of part of the um, uh, production of this beer um had a little citrus zest in it. Okay. So then so technically it's like way less than 1% of, of the total weight of dry ingredients, but you know, it's still an ingredient in there. So we decided to list it. I like that. That, that makes complete sense. Um, it's actually kind of cool doing it this way, like back to back with seance, because I'm getting that same creamy body that we were talking about earlier. Um, in this mm. one, with this, you're right, like a candied peach vibe. I feel like peach has got to be one of the top three adjuncts for beer. I, I don't know why. I just personally... Yeah, people love peaches. Yeah. yeah. Big, big fan. Um, this works incredible with it. I love that it's sort of like op- opaque, so it kind of like it gives that feeling that it's like this fruit you know like fruited sours are never really clear for the most part like you know like you were saying your bottled stuff is a lot if you don't include the bottom part um a lot more clear there's something where the where seance and this are 
very opaque. So it just really feels visually juicy. I'm not sure if that's, uh, if it's misrepresenting itself on my palate, but I'm like, I'm really getting like this really creamy body with this juicy candy peach. It's, um, but it's still, once again, subtly confident, which is fantastic. That's the, that's the goal. I think that, I mean, again, like leaning into nostalgia, like I stick my nose in this and I get like peach juice and fuzzy peaches. Yeah. That's like, really what it is. Definitely the, the like more, yeah, confected candied aromas, which honestly, like for me as, as like a brewer, um, has been fascinating because like I, I, I don't know why that is. Uh, I just know that it is. That the second use fruit we end up with these candied more like, like refined fruit. And I don't mean refined like cutting down. I mean like it went into some sort of like food process refined. Right. Hmm. Um yeah, I can't I, I can't speak to what is happening biologically and chemically, but it's consistent across three different fruits like wineskins, plums, and peaches. Mm. Each time we get these candied notes, which um, uh, I love. It's just fascinating and interesting and uh, um, like a really cool different flavor palette. Uh, uh, it's been a journey that way. It's been, it's been very interesting and instructive to sort of, Listen, like we do talk about a lot in, in the barrel age and the, and the mixed fermentation beer is you have to do a lot more listening and negotiating um, mm. versus the clean beer. You sort of like tell the yeast what to do and you give it very clear walls um, and a clear box in which to operate. Uh, and if you do that, it will consistently create the same flavor. Um, the barrels are alive and there are just so many voices involved inside because of the many different organisms that the idea of telling it what to do is, is sort of, um, folly. I think, um, the, uh, the approach that has worked best for us has been to, um, you know, nudge it in the right direction, understand what it needs, uh, but also listen, um, and really like use our palates and use our knowledge to, um, guide it rather than um direct it hmm. um and so in in terms of this beer it's that's been like definitely um as i said we changed the aging profile because the first year we did this the um we wanted to see what would happen if we tried to push the fresh characteristic in pale fire and the result has been this like um amplification of, of the candied characteristics, uh, in, in firefly. Uh, hmm. so it's certainly a happy accident on our part. It's, you know, it's not like I, I had a perfect master plan. Um, but, uh, I had experience and, and like a decent hypothesis and, uh, we, we chased it and, and, you know, we're seeing the results now. I'd love to see that bro. So from the one I would have had in January to this batch, what would you say are the differences? Mm. This is less acidic. Um, like I said, more candied. Um, it has like a longer last on the palate, uh, but it's also lighter body. Um, okay. It is, um, yeah, it's like full of flavor, very juicy, uh, but also just kind of like drinks crisp. Like it's a, it's a crispy boy fruited sour. Crispy boy fruited sour. I love it. 
This is yeah, man. I mean, five point five, so it's you know it's still super light, very crushable, um, very simple. Like as far as the characteristics of the um, of the the seance, I don't know why I'm getting a lot of those same thing. I, I feel like unless I'm sort of like um, the same things as far as like the the body and the like you were saying as well. Like you got the candied plum the, and the wine skins, and now the candied peach. You're sort of like definitely seeing a lot of that, having it back to back. I don't know if I would have felt like that if I didn't know exactly all the information you just um, told me. Yeah. But hard to say. Um, I would say that, um, uh, you know, like the, the production process that yields, um, uh, seance is very similar to the process that yields, um, firefly. So we, we've sort of learned, like I said earlier, like we've learned the style of brewing required to, um, uh, for the beer to sort of mature in, in a couple months versus a couple years or one year. Uh, and so uh, we follow that same set of rules making both Seance and Firefly. Uh, so a lot of the elements you're tasting have to do with what we've done in the brew house and like how our culture reacts to that. Mm. Um, so you're going to get um, uh, definitely like thematic, like you're getting a theme that connects um, all of these kind of second use fruit beers and, and broader, more broadly, all of these um, canned sours uh, because like a huge amount of flavor is being driven by that living culture. Um, and depending on the, type of food that we give to it um we just get a different result hmm. i love it and once again the response to this has this been similar to violet moon and seance as far as people i mean pale fire has been at a bunch longer being that this was the second yeah yeah so yeah this being the second has has been um there's been a good chunk of people who know what it is and are happy to see it back so we're seeing Pretty good pickup on this. Cans are moving well. Um, kegs are moving well. But um, uh, yeah, we'd love to see um, this in the hands of more people because uh, I, I do think that um, uh, it's like a unique product. Um, and uh, I think as with a lot of our goals, I, I think this is sort of a success insofar as like you could probably give this beer to somebody who isn't a sour beer drinker or isn't a beer drinker um, and um, have a decent chance that they're going to like it. Um, and that's sort of what we're, our, our broader goal is, is to just sort of widen the um, sort of general perception of what um, sour beer can be. Um that, you know, if you want something that is really sour and intense and, um, uh, you know, like um, sour and intense is the best way to describe it, uh, that's available. Um, and uh, there's a lot of good producers who, who make beer in that style. Uh, but it's not the only way to make it. Um, and, and you can have sour beer that... Um, is a little more approachable and delicate and um, has some more sort of like cocktail and wine um, characteristics that, that maybe give it a wider audience. Yeah. Um, and those are the, those are the beers we're, we're striving to make. 
I love that, man. You mentioned like I, I really feel like white wine drinkers would love this. I remember I bought I can't remember which winery, but there, there's some winery in Niagara that does peach wine, and I I got it years ago, and Tiff's been on me for drinking it because I don't drink wine enough. I drink basically just beer. So she's like, man, drink this damn wine that you had for ages because you're supposed to get this peach wine and mix it with their sparkling. It was like this thing that they did. And I remember bought that, like got them both. It's like Q or Consumen or something like that. Um, so peach wine is a thing. And, you know, peach is obviously a, a you know a residual flavor in a lot of the, the white wines that are offered, you know, that absolutely. Throughout, throughout Niagara. So um, I feel like this is a type of stuff that would absolutely appeal to um, a whole bunch of people, even if they're not, like you said, not beer drinkers, but they are into white wines. Um, this is mm-hmm. approachable inoffensive not overly acidic like i feel like this must have a similar acidity level than some white wines i imagine or maybe a touch more yeah that, that's a like a complicated, a complicated um, question. <laughs> like really interesting um yeah like wineries will will measure acid by titration okay uh which gives you a, a more accurate um measurement of the actual like impression of the acid versus something like ph um we don't titrate um we don't see the value in it because of of sort of um style of beer we're making and you know in in wines like the level of acid is like directly connected to the level of sugar and a certain amount of acid is important for ageability and in certain wines it's like a lot it's like much more of a balancing act between sugar and acid. Uh, for us, that's not really how it works. So um, we don't need to know that information. And, and I'm a big proponent of the fact that, like, you know, um, you should have all of the data that you need, but it's easy to just imagine that you should get more data because data is good. But um, too much data that you're not using is just noisy. You just end up wasting a lot of time. Um you know, tracking things that like don't give you, um, uh, answers. Mm. Um, and so something like titratable acidity is not something we, um, sort of need at this point in our, in, in our brewery's life. Uh, so I, I, all that to say, it's an overly complicated way to say that I have no idea what the comparative acidity of this versus a white wine. Um, it's certainly a different acid profile. But uh, you do get a lot of like pretty intensely acidic white wine, so it's certainly not other place. And have you seen that? Like, have you seen people converted yourself in the brewery at all? Like, people come in like, oh yeah, I don't really drink beer. I'm a wine, I'm a wine drinker. What, what do you got? Yeah, we get a lot of that. Yeah, we get, we Imagine. were able to pitch our barrel aged beers to a lot of people who drink wine, and more and more these these sort of the canned quicker sours are, are having the same effect. Um, uh, yeah, it's definitely something you can pitch to people who, you know, traditionally don't like beer. Mm. Um, because largely of like what, um, the major beers available and that's like a, you know, industrial lager, um, or, um, if they've, Tried craft beer is likely a very hoppy beer because that's the dominant style. The style I love, but certainly not a style for somebody who is like on the fence about beer. 
you know, someone who is yeah. made like a maybe on beer, you probably don't want to serve them a double IPA. It might be not good. It's probably for, not the best for where they are in their palate. Yeah. Do you know what's funny though? That's pairing. I, I agree with the double IPA. I remember being in New York with one of my with Tiffany's friend, who's a wine drinker. She doesn't really drink beer, and I was drinking other half. And she was like, oh, that's interesting. Why does it look like that? And I'll explain to her what it was. And she took a sip of it, and she thought it was amazing. So I feel like mm. New England IPAs, because of people associate hops with bitter, like West Coast, you know, bitter, resin, dank uh, type of thing. Mm-hmm. But then when they actually try a New England, like, oh, all right. So it can taste like mangoes and pineapples and, and, and tropical fruit in a certain way without the acidity that, that a sour would have. Whilst I would imagine that this type of beer would align a lot. Like, while she really enjoyed that, and I thought that was just an interesting anecdote, um, I think this is very, like, very similar to what they're already drinking. So it's sort of less of a stretch. And it's just not that, like, it's interesting. You'd think that, oh, yeah, this Pilsner, this craft Pilsner is just like, you know, the other, you know, fizzy yellow water that you're used to seeing and thinking about as beer doesn't always get them over the line if they don't already, you know, drink the macro stuff. So it's, yeah. there's a lot of value. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I say this like with love, but, um, you know, Pilsner is like a beer flavored beer. Yeah, um, and, um, if you like beer, that's great. Uh, and I love a Pilsner, um, like nothing else, but, I'll be the first to admit that it tastes like beer. And if you don't like the taste of beer, you are not going to like the best Pilsner in the world. Nope. It's still going to taste like beer. It's true. Um, but something like this sort of stretches the, you know, expectation of what beer tastes like. So you, you can probably pitch it to somebody who, who doesn't like beer. No question. And I feel like it would convert, which is, it really like I don't know I don't know if it gets really talked about it much. I try to bring it up here as much as possible. I think it's super valuable. I think it's a really like key thing to talk about like gateway beers because if this industry is going to grow and we all want all of this to continue to thrive and get bigger and better, we need more people purchasing the products. And yeah, I agree. Way, yeah, yeah. yeah, we need we need a wider audience, like yeah. the widest audience possible, um, because. Um, you know, uh, a small audience is great. They'd be very passionate. And, you know, the people who have supported craft beer for years are, are unbelievably passionate and are the reason the industry's around. But um, you, you, you just never, you know, want your business to be reliant on a niche group. Um, and uh, the, like, biggest craft beer fans are a niche group they're they're amazing uh but there are just not that many of them um and you know you don't ever want to alienate them because they are like the best customers you can have but they can't be your only customers because there there are so many breweries and and you know they can only be in one place at one time so you you certainly want to try to grow the uh the number of people who are interested in actively seeking out craft beer and also um, like where those people come from, um, you know, uh, what their upbringing was uh, uh, financially, culturally, 
where, like what type of job they hold. Um, you want that to be a very um, uh, wide base representative of a city like Toronto or a city like um, Hamilton or Montreal. Um, it's best for everybody to, um, you know, just be connected to as many people as possible. 100% man. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting time to be in beer. I imagine being that I feel like I've heard things that beer isn't growing right now. Um, but I also feel like the last two years were sort of like a skewed so heavily. I don't even know if it's really fair to say that you got the introduction of seltzers that we're fighting against, which I don't know. I guess we're coming out of the summer. Like I don't know how much seltzers dominated or not. I didn't see every other brewery doing one. So I, I don't know if uh, that's the case. It's going to change this camera battery. Um, can you hear me still? I can hear you. Okay. Just perfect. Um, but uh, yeah, it really just seems that like the, the probably the most undervalued, um, segment of the craft beer market, at least overall that I see getting talked about, are the sort of people who we're converting. Um, and we need as many opportunities to, to convert people as possible. Um, I would argue, I've seen um, at Aveling, I've been there, I've checked out, say like what's happening on the patio. I feel like I'm seeing a, there we go, beautiful, a um, pretty wide range of humans on, on the patio there. I feel like you guys get a pretty, I mean, maybe it's your location, maybe it's the kitchen. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, a big driver of that is the kitchen. Um, uh, our chef uh, grew up uh, in Hong Kong and Hawaii, and cool. uh, her food is like really influenced by, um, you know, her upbringing and her story. Um and so the resulting food is is like unique for a brewery, and I, I I really believe that in like the true sense of the word. I don't know any other brewery that has food like this, um, uh, because it's this like mix of of Hong Kong um, as a melting pot and as like um you know a, a traditionally Cantonese place uh, with uh, all of the Polynesian influence of Hawaii. Um, and uh, the result is, is that we, um, you know, have uh, these interpretations of, uh, you know, traditional Chinese comfort food, for example, um, that show up on our menu. Um, and uh, that uh, connects us to, like, strongly to, um, to like, a very large um, Chinese and Southeast Asian um, population in, in Toronto. Uh, so um, who may or may not be into beer already, uh, but um, are um, in our experience traveling um, to try these interpretations of the food um, because it's like, you know, connected to their history and their story as well. Um, and, then they're getting introduced to the style of beer that we make. Um, and, you know, in the inverse, we have a bunch of people who come for the beer because they like German lagers, because they like sour beers. Uh, and then the menu is um, like significantly different than they expect. Uh, but now they're being introduced to, um, you know, food in a way that, that they, um, you know, don't see every day. So it, it's, it's a really nice 
you know, intersection of, um, of influences based on like a largely European, um, beer inspiration and a, um, largely Southeast Asian, uh, and, and with some Polynesian influence, uh, mm. food. Um, you, you have two parts of the world that historically have like totally different, um, stories to tell. Mm. So like the food itself is really attracting a diverse and, and sort of new crowd that may not know much about craft beer, but they've heard about the food. So that's also, uh, yeah. we do, we do get a lot of people who come for the food who are very into craft beer. Okay. Um, but we also get people who uh, are not, and this is their first introduction to craft beer, um, via the food because, uh, that's what drew them in. I love that though, Mo. That's something that I don't think I've ever really spoken about here much as far as like how food can convert uh, drinkers, which I think is yeah. extremely important. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, um, um, yeah it, and like pairing opportunities are very interesting um, for us as well because we make all these beers that have floral elements and fruit and like all and then like earthy and uh all of these characteristics that come from these long age beers, um, which are all like, um, flavors that are, uh, uh, sought after and, um, you know, an important part of Chinese cooking. Um, you yeah. have way more urgentness and way more floral characteristics and umami is, is like, uh, you know, a foundational, um, part of the cuisine. Um, and so it's an interesting thing to be able to pair um, because some of these elements are not as present in European food or North American food. Right. And a typical, you know, typically at brew pubs, you would kind of get more either, you know, European basic dishes or burgers, pizzas, things like that, yeah. that would, wouldn't always sort of attract a, you know, different crowd that might not be exposed to craft beer before, which I think is the important part. The- yeah, I think that's the important part too. And and just from like an intrigue level with regards to flavors, um, it's just very interesting to try to um, figure out how uh, these beers fit into a totally new cuisine. Mm. Um, because like with wine, like you can find pairings for for you know foods way way out of the like wheelhouse for. French wine, you know, like most French food and French wine, um, develops side by side. And so the food and the wine echo each other, but it doesn't mean it has to be that way. Um, you can absolutely pair, um, French white wine with, with Thai food, for example, mm. that's a challenge, but it's possible. Um, it's an interesting challenge. Right. We, we feel the same here is that we have all these new flavors and new, you know, um, conceptions of balance, uh, that come um, via the, you know, really technique driven, um, Chinese food. Mm. Um, and so we have all these, this like new palette to work with, um, where these flavors show up that we can play off of that we don't normally see, um, in, um, North American food. Hmm. Does the food in the kitchen ever inspire the beer or has it yet? Uh, it's sort of, yeah, it is starting to. So we, we spent a reasonable amount of time not using any, um, adjuncts. So fruit, grain, that kind of stuff, like a flake grain or whatever from outside of Ontario. Um, over 
the last year we've realized that like you know the the motivation for that was was to highlight Ontario but we have been able through like the amazing producers we're connected with uh, make all of these 99% beers so we feel like we have that um, sort of as like a uh, centerpiece of, of our beer program and mm. so we've decided that we'll, we'll play around with some ingredients that come from elsewhere in the world uh, and some of the inspiration for that has been from the kitchen so we've got some beers coming down the pipeline that um, are using um, Southeast Asian ingredients um, uh, in this line of, uh, of mixed fermentation cans so those, those will come out Very sometime cool. next year man that's awesome uh, I love to hear that. Do you want to jump on the the final one? Rock the the pale fire, and we'll uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, wrap let's do it up it. just to get that comparison. So, yeah, excited for this one. The twenty twenty two, this one barrel aged blend uh, with peaches, six point seven percent. Just a glorious beer, um, dude. What is the difference between the twenty twenty two and the one we had in the last podcast? Um, so our fruit quality was higher, um, better year for peaches. Um, we learned a little more about how we're going to process the peaches as well. Like when we need to get them from the farm and how we need to process them when they come in the door. So our peaches were riper and, um, uh, we got just more, um, weight of peaches we had to sort a lot the first year and we had okay. to sort last year um so with more peach character we let it age on the peaches longer we had better beer to blend with because we had more old beer and we had more of a wide palette um to to sort of play with um so we the blend we created had, had more complexity and had a better sort of balance of acid and bitterness that we think is like in the right place to accentuate the peaches. Okay. Um, the past that it's the same. Um, insofar as it's like a blend of a blend of barrels sort of like discovered in the cellar and, um, aged on roughly 1800 pounds of, of Ontario donut peaches for six months then bottle condition for a minimum of six months before release. What's a donut peach? That sounds amazing. Um, probably seen them at some point in a grocery store. They're really common in um, Chinese grocers. Um, they're a peach, but they're like squished down. They're they're um, sometimes they're called Saturn peaches. Hmm. Um, they're or flat peaches. So I think I know they're really only about this this tall, but. Um, you know, they look like the rings of Saturn, I guess, or they look like a donut. Interesting. Um, it's a peach that has like more character. It's like sweeter and has more like actual flavor characteristics to it. Um, I love an Ontario, like a standard Ontario peach. It's one of my favorite things in the summer. But the definitive character of that is sweetness, and when we ferment, we lose that sweetness. So, uh, regular peaches can be a big challenge. You put a lot of them in the beer, and they don't taste like peaches. But uh, donut peaches give you a much more aggressive peach characteristic. Interesting. Man, this is great. I had no idea. All right. Cheers, bro. Oh, man, so good. 
So comparing these two <laughs> side by side, they are quite different. Yeah. So the, the goal of what we're doing with, with Pale Fire, or at least with really with any of these fresh fruit beers, is um, I think it's best represented in Pale Fire. Um, is we're like, you know, when you eat a whole peach, um, you, you get a different flavor from the skin than you do mm-hmm. from the flesh, than you do from the juice, than you do from like the sort of hardened part that's near the pit. Okay. Um, you know, biting right through, um, there are like sort of different stages of flavor if you just eat the peach from the outside in. And when we make pale fire, the goal is that you can hopefully taste all of that within your sip. So you can taste that the skin is a little more bitter, that the flesh and the juice are where like the acid and the sweetness are. And that when you get close to the pit, maybe your teeth kind of scrape against that pit because you're biting too close to the middle, you get that little brown spice, warm spice um, characteristic out of it. Um, mm. So we're really hoping that, you know, within each sip is a whole peach. Honestly, as you were saying that, I'm absolutely getting those spices on the on the nose before even the body. Mm-hmm which I don't recall specifically with the last one, but granted it was a while ago. Um, is this a newer thing that's come from maybe having more to work with? It's more pronounced this year than it was last year because the fruit character is more pronounced. Um, so everything that comes along with that has been sort of dialed up. Okay. Um, but we had that characteristic. Um, in the last batch, it, it certainly was there. It just might have been more subtle. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm definitely getting that um, that chewiness again. It's kind of like the, the the sides of the cheeks. It's almost like a dryness or something, which I love. Um, talk me through it, man. Like uh, I'm, I love your tasting notes. I feel like they're just super unique. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, this is a funny one. I remember working with um, our uh, old. Uh, social media manager on um, the original release of this and um, she did a really great job of like trying to you know push me to uh, describe things in multiple different ways so you can kind of get more um, uh, descriptive value out of it Um, unfortunately with a peach beer like this it tastes like peaches (laughs) Uh, I know that's unfortunate and so at every turn you're like yeah so it tastes like peaches (laughs) and then like peach pie and, um, peach jam and, uh, you know, peach juice and, and and peaches. Uh, This is the hardest beer I've ever had to describe, but, um, certainly as I said, the, the like flavor of the whole peach, the, the skin, the juice, the flesh, the pit. Uh, and then there's like a little bit of more of like a cooked peach characteristic and the brown, like the, the warm spices sort of give you that impression of peach pie, which would traditionally have like a little bit of nutmeg or something in the filling. Um, there is just a little bit of grain characteristic, which um, I think kind of echoes the like uh, pie crust. Um, it has like a very juicy acidity. Um, it's very lactic. It's very um, front of your mouth and um, – 
um, delicate. Um, it, it doesn't burn. Um, it really makes you salivate in a really nice way. Um, and then, you know, the finish is, is long and defined by um, that acid. It's, it's just like kind of tension between, um, you know, fresh peaches, um, peach pie, and, um, you know, just a touch, just a touch of that, uh, of uh, that like pie crust bitterness. I think you got to nail that, dude. That's essentially everything I'm getting here. And it, you're right. It's just like an insane amount of peaches, uh, which I don't know. You want a peach beer? God damn it. This is what this is. Tastes like peaches. Tastes like peaches, which is super important. Um, I, I, I think our original social media blast was big peach energy. <laughs> which I think is accurate extraordinarily um and the would you say that there's a similar cousin relationship uh, you know in with firefly and, and the pale fire and Violet moon seance like it's it's to me it feels really similar like it, it feels mm -hmm. familiar um feels like it's a derivative not in a bad way but like you know it's a mm -hmm. a version of a different version of in, in a most positive yeah. way, um, which to yeah. me feels like that's what you were out to achieve with this. Yeah, it's definitely what we're at, what we're after on it. Um, I uh, especially like it's been a while since I've like really like done. I don't think I've ever actually done these four like back to back, back to back. Um, and what strikes me, at least, just from like somebody who makes beer. Um, is that like this is the best example I have ever uh, like myself tasted as to like um, like tasting technique is I guess the best way I can describe it is mm. that like there's really like not very much flavor wise that connects um, there's some but not a ton that that connects Seance and Firefly. Uh, but their relation to their um, barrel-aged cousin um, is like very similar. You can really taste like that the the line between Firefly and Pale Fire and and between Seance and and Violet Moon is similar. It's the same line, um, and uh, I think that's that's for us that that is sort of defined by technique. Like that is the um, the way we make. Seance and Firefly is expressed via that line. Mm. Um, this is my first time kind of thinking about this, so I wish I had a more no, clear-headed explanation. But I do feel like, yeah, I do. The through line feels consistent, even though the products are like quite different. I do like that you hadn't thought about it because that means this is a raw first-time response. So, and that's okay. You don't always have to have everything because I know you're very meticulous man and and that's how you get down but i agree with oh, yeah hey, man I, I feel like i know you well enough to know that's how you get you know you always have a really solid answer for everything but i think this is cool that if you haven't really done anything like this before um i feel like i'm getting the same things and i know these beers basically not at all except pale fire really i had firefly 10 months ago 
it was I just checked earlier. It was January second, and I remember having it because I I swear I didn't think I had COVID. I don't think I had, but I had no. I had basically no taste, and I didn't realize I had no taste until I got really sick after Christmas, and I had it then. I could still taste it, but I feel like I didn't. I get the full experience, um, and I checked. And I was like, ah, okay. So I can see that. I can see like there's like there's there's lines between the two the two products, the two the barrel aged ones, and then the stainless ones. You can see they're from the same sort of ilk. They're similar, but not the, like as you said, but not similar. Um, and, and it's even more interesting to put them side by side with the barrel age ones. And then we're doing those two back to back. It's uh, it's kind of fascinating to really see sort of that like to see the sort of all of it sort of bloom and blossom and come and come out. Yeah, yeah it's been an it interesting experience for me too, <laughs> especially going like barrel aged stainless and then stainless barrel aged like that. You know, making the circle like that has been. Yeah, it's been a really cool experience for me too. So, like, yeah, these are, are just genuinely fascinating beers, and they work so well together. And I don't recall ever seeing anything exactly like this. I think this is just very innovative. Um, it's a really fun approach to beer that can teach people something whilst also just being independently killer. All of them are fantastic. Um, Thanks. I, I appreciate that a lot. I mean, you already know, um, man. Like, oh, we're, like, we're, we're definitely not the first people to do this. Um, other breweries in town, Bellwoods has made um, like beers second on second-use fruit. Like mug. Yeah, yeah that's like true. Mug. Yeah. yeah, exactly, a mug, um, um, which is great. I really like mug. Um, but uh, I do um, – like our style of doing it is, is – um, you know, just really trying to focus on um, uh, the difference between the first and second use, I guess, and like maximizing our usage of things. Um, and, and so uh, we're just trying to do our best to um, get as many expressions out of this fruit as we can, because it's just like such a beautiful ingredient. And, uh, you know, it, it's like heartbreaking to, imagine you got this ingredient and you put so much work into it and you didn't get everything out of it. Yeah. So we're just trying to get everything out of it. I love it, man. At a time, the most still, you know, sort of unpredictable, unstable, whatever you want to call it, time of our lifetime. I mean, like that makes the most sense to maximize everything and never, you know, you don't know, like we just talked about the European hops. You never know when things could just be, restricted we're not able to get stuff because of things outside of our control so if you're able to maximize what you've got and be able to create a whole new product that sits on its own as an interesting beer um that you know you can talk about it in relation to its barrel aged version but you don't have to and at least those peaches aren't just being like, all right well there's a whole bunch of flavor in but cool let's just chuck them out like you're doing something with it um i think it's dope bro um this has been really interesting just before we wrap it up do we want to just just show the other ones from the series that we have just so people can see them yeah so one i would really like to to highlight um that we didn't get to is uh ruby yes so ruby's a really special beer um uh 
Uh, it is uh, a beer that was made on International Women's Day um, by uh, female-identifying um, employees here, and it was spearheaded by our um, former brewer, Taylor, who um, was an enormous part of um, sort of the growth and success of Aveling over the last uh, three years. Um, she's since departed to uh, um, pursue her own business, so check out Troublemaker, T.O. Um, she does really amazing candles and soaps uh, and, uh, you know, lip balms, all sorts of, of very interesting stuff. Um, but she spearheaded this brew and uh, designed the recipe, so it is a um, beer in the same realm as uh, Meerkat and Firefly and Seance, um, but it is brewed with uh, an enormous amount of uh, rhubarb that was uh, processed in, in three different ways to sort of build complexity, uh, and then it was further aged on um, hundreds of uh, fresh Ontario cucumbers. Um all of the cucumbers were peeled and processed and added um, to this beer to create this like pretty amazing aromatic profile and uh, a very interesting acidity. The rhubarb changes the how the acid lands like pretty significantly. So uh, it's a really deep and complex and interesting beer and and um, uh, just a really amazing product that came from um, all of the female identifying people at Avid. Very cool. I actually had this not too long ago, and it's uh, it's fantastic. It's very unique. The cucumber really shines through, but the rhubarb is rhubarb is such a, an interesting ingredient, eh? Like it's like a earthy, yet you know. I usually think of rhubarb in um, shit. Is it strawberry and rhubarb? Pie? Pie. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like it's like that other little pink celery stuff that like goes into pies that yeah. you know it's a little bit bitter yeah. and earthy. But in a beer with cucumber, this was, and a sour beer with cucumber is the first time I've ever seen that. And then even now you've just pointed out that it was processed multiple ways. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was just yeah, it's a really great profile in um, in that beer. Um, really, really big fan of that one. The other one we have here is uh, Starling, which is the white wine sour. Yeah, so Starling is almost gone. If you uh, if you're interested in it, come now. Um, that's my favorite label, I think. Uh, Very cool. This is a beer we made uh, on um, white wine skins, um, fresh pressed from Rosewood. So well, they pressed them, and we had them in um, uh, in the tank that same day. It's um, a wine grape called Sauvignon, which is um, rare to see, especially fresh wine. It's it's the grape that goes into Vinjon. If you've ever heard of Vinjon, it's just like uh, alpine wine from Ooh. France. It's like quite unique and um, like just nutty. It's a very unique wine. Uh, but uh, Rosewood had all this fresh press Sauvignon, so we um, made a. Um, turbid mash beer which is the traditional lambic profile um and then um aged it with our mixed culture and those skins uh and canned it so um that beer is like what i refer to as like our chardonnay it has like a ton of different characteristics that that really mix with chardonnay just a little bit of uh, of that sort of oak like characteristic uh, mixing with some really nice bright fruit, bright acid, 
and uh, and a richness that um, uh, uh, we're really uh, proud of. I love that. That sounds amazing. Uh, and this was a beer we talked about earlier. Uh, carry on the honey oh, yeah. beer with the new label that's uh, looking gorgeous here. Um, and this also has the pineapple sage, of course. That's what it had in it, which is super yeah. fire. I think so we had this on the last pod. Yeah, that that's a beer that like represents Sabling really beautifully. Um, we make a beer. Uh, we, we grow an entire season's worth of pineapple sage, which is a really interesting, unique herb that um, really just tastes like pineapples. Um, and uh, we uh, once a year we harvest all of the pineapple sage and um, chop it up, and we store it in rosewood honey. And we let the honey infuse with the pineapple sage uh, for a good while, and then we make a beer out of it. Um, so we've made carry on a few times. Traditionally, it has been like with Meerkat, a single culture beer, and now we've transitioned it to this mixed culture, and it, it's brought like an entirely new level of um, intrigue and complexity to it. And uh, we really think it's at like at a, a really amazing place right now. So. Uh, that's a beer that's going to be coming out in um, a couple weeks. Um, I highly suggest you come and try it. It's, it's it's pretty special. We're proud of it. That's amazing, man. So right now it looks like there's, uh, tell me if this is accurate, like six beers from this um, beautiful mixed ferment culture with the wonderful golden ends on the cans. Is that correct? That's what I'm looking in front of me, but there may be more. Uh, yeah, there are six at the moment. There will be seven or eight by the end of the year. Amazing. Unless we run out, um, it's possible that um, it's actually probable that we'll run out of Starling before uh, Christmas time, but we have two more likely to come out near Christmas. Okay, so for those folks who want to get hold of this stuff, like basically getting ASAP to, to make sure that you you grab these before they, uh, they before they disappear. Um, look, without hyperbole, I think these are really special beers, dude. Like, I very much respect Thanks. you and everything that uh, that you do. I know how seriously you take your craft, um, and I was looking forward to this to to see how things have changed since last year. I feel like you're always leveling up what you're doing um, and everything we've had tonight. I think we just like you said, special beers, man. Like, they almost feel like beers you should have on a special occasion, but. Aveling has packaged and created them so that, you know, they, why should you wait to have fire beer uh, in a world that's kind of crazy? Just crack the best stuff. And, and I feel like this is, you know, yeah. approachable. Have it on that special occasion called Thursday. That's it. Tuesday that's, afternoon. That's how I look at it. Yeah. I, I think day, that's. Every day is special. That's it, man. I think that's the uh, way to do it. And you can easily crush any of these uh, solo. You can share them, of course, but uh, you know you don't have to really worry too much about uh, you know keeping them for for anything when there's a bunch of people over. So I feel like these are uh, gate the the beers that are approachable, whilst also sort of you know they they should essentially convert people uh, to being craft beer drinkers who who might be newer to the the market as well. So it's the type of thing that if you're into it already, share it with your friends and, and, and maybe, uh, blow some minds with what craft beer can really be. Um, I love it, dude. Was there anything else we wanted to touch on before we, uh, bring our own home? Uh, no, just, uh, reiterate that, uh, you know, coming to Aveling to eat, to drink, um, 
you know, is a holistic experience. There's a lot of really cool interplay between what happens in the kitchen and what happens in the brewery. Um, you can find our beer around town. We're very happy and proud with, um, you know, the bars that have us on tap um, and restaurants that have us on tap. But um, the experience of coming here is is sort of the the, the whole hog, and um, I highly suggest it. I love it. I love to see it. Um, let's take the uh, thumbnail, and then we'll wrap it up, and we'll finish off uh, off air. Do you want to hold up a couple of uh, fire beers? Oh, let me get pale fire. Yeah, and sure. Firefly there. Little cousins right there. There we go. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, get them. You got double hands. All right. <laughs> you ready? That is stunning. Uh, Brandon, where can everybody find Aveling online and in person? Uh, you can find us at um, aveling.ca. Um, we are at 1042 Queen Street East in Toronto. That's in Leslieville. Um, Great you can location. find us at um, beers and uh, bars and restaurants uh, across southern Ontario. Um, if you're out of town, you can find us at... Um, OG Bottle Shop, you can find us at Arabella Park. Um, you can find us uh, other choice spots in Hamilton, uh, West End, uh, lots of bars, restaurants. Um, just go sniff and you'll find us. Uh, but 1042 yeah, Queen Street East, that's the place to come um, have the whole experience. Yeah, highly recommended. I've uh, had the food there, not since it, uh, you know, since the, the menu sort of developed. So I actually am very excited to be back in in town to be able to check it out but the you know i know the patio season i imagine is probably wrapped up at this point but inside it's a super cozy place um i've heard like everything that you've said about the food sounds amazing i've heard other great things as well um definitely worth trying you know you've got all these beautiful sours whether they're second use fruit or the barrel age plus also the the classic the ipa the pilsner the jefe the bohemian i love the bohemian lager um the uh the why am I having a blank? What's the V lager? Why am I Vienna lager is fantastic. Oh, Vienna lager, yeah. I love that one. Um, it's kind of like whatever you're, whatever you're into. Avling has something for you. Um, Brandon, that's, that's the goal. That's exactly it, dude. Thank you so much for your time, dude. It's uh, a pleasure as always. I knew this would be a great one. Thank you, bro. Stick around the end. We'll, we'll wrap it up. But guys, thank you for watching and listening. Yeah. If you enjoyed the episode, smash the thumbs up, hit subscribe below, hit the notification bell so you know when the new drops. Follow us everywhere at BAOS Podcast and check us out uh, every Wednesday, 8 p.m. We drop new ones here on YouTube and on uh, all podcast networks, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that nonsense. Um, we'll see you in the next one, guys. Get it in here.